KOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, good morning. No Patty Daly today. I'm Tim Powers sitting in for Patty. Patty is off. I uh, hope he, I think he will be back tomorrow, but I uh, got the call early this morning from my friend Greg Smith. Good thing I uh, checked my, uh, my, uh, phone before I turned on the soccer game, but uh, happy to be here with you uh, on this last Monday in November, Cyber Monday, Mullet Monday. It's a Monday of many titles. Hope you had a good weekend. Did you watch that soccer game? Let's start there. I'm sure a lot of people did. At home, soccer is huge. I can think of many wonderful nights and afternoons spent at King George V Park or Feeling Grounds, watching soccer games, uh, playing in St. Lawrence. I know our province loves soccer. And, of course, we have a great historic tie to the last World Cup. Canada beat Honduras at King George V Park. That One of the balls sailed into the river, and it was uh, retrieved, and years later brought back to the team. They had it last year when they qualified for the World Cup. Cup. So here we are in Qatar, 0-2 right now, but some history. Alfonso Davies got that big goal two minutes in. First goal Canada has scored in World Cup soccer play. It was a brilliant play. Great cross to Davies. Took it to the net and put it in, no doubt on that. And Canada was frenetic for the first 30 or 40 minutes. And then Croatia reminded us why they're one of the best teams in the world. Came back and put four goals on and in on us. Maybe a little motivated by Canadian coach John Herdman's um, condemnation of their approach and style. They just didn't let up. Anyway, our guys can keep their heads held high. Uh, Croatia, don't forget, we're a World Cup finalist. They're one of the top ten teams in the world. Our build, our focus has really got to be on 2026 and the World Cup being in Canada and the United States and getting to a at least a preliminary um, round playoff game there. We still have one more game on Thursday against Morocco. That's probably the opportunity for ha for us to have our most competitive game, of course, because we play Belgium, number two team in the world. And it's hard to beat top ten teams in the world if you don't get to play them very often. But Canada has afforded themselves well. So uh, way to go. I don't know if you have an opinion of the, the tournament being in Qatar. Ben Murphy and I were talking about that this morning. I don't think that's on Canada. That's on FIFA. If FIFA in its course of vacuuming up cash all over the globe, wants to take money from Qataris and is prepared to overlook the significant uh, human rights violations that are prominent in that nation. We ought to hold FIFA to account. Our players made the tournament. They got to go there. I know our government has made some comments about calling out the Qataris, and we should be doing all of that, but let's hold FIFA to account. Let's make sure FIFA aren't always about the cash. Though, as I said to Ben Murphy, we're coming to North America in 2010, or not we, FIFA is, with the World Cup, and certain criticisms we need to answer to, particularly in Canada, around our treatment of Indigenous peoples. Should all those things be mixed? you want to talk about that, give me a call on this Mullet Monday, Cyber Monday, how did your weekend go? How did your wallet survive? Because, of course, it was Black Friday. We're in this period of sale, 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 as we're 27 days uh, away from Christmas, and uh, that's 
the Christmas. There are other holidays, of course, that are important and people celebrate. But 27 days until Christmas, the pressures to buy and give gifts are not lessening despite the economic struggles we find ourselves in. Did you use Black Friday as a tool to help you get some savings or did it increase your spending or do these these gimmicky marketing days because that's what they are except for mullet monday and cbs i mean that's not nothing gimmicky about mullet monday that's just good old-fashioned haircutting who hasn't had a mullet talk about that too but back to gimmicky marketing uh these are big sales days they work people go online they find sales they get them before boxing day they hopefully get what they're looking for um we've heard uh, experts say be cautious be sensible pace yourself it's a bit like going to a christmas party you don't want to get it go in and get bombed right off the bat and probably shouldn't get bombed anyway but uh, when you're doing online shopping it's hard not to click again if you see that you know Big pop-up of 25% off here, 30% off there. How did you make it through all of this? What do you think? And, of course, tomorrow's Giving Tuesday. It all comes together. I wonder if people have any money left to give on Giving Tuesday, given that uh, you've probably spent a fair bit of money, and then they get you on Giving Tuesday when all of the charities across the country, rightly, put their hand up and say, hey, we need some help, because they do. And give us some dollars, because we could really put them to use. So Giving Tuesday is, is upon us. And talk about giving. A shout-out to my superstar producer, director of programming, host of all hosts, Greg Smith, who's on with me today, running the show from behind the scenes. Greg and the VOCM team, Claudette, Burns, others, helped raise $28,000. $28,000, highest ever, Greg tells me for the dial a carol that's awesome and one of the things we know about this station vocm is you love your christmas music and i'm glad you open your wallet for that because the, the the work that the vocm cares foundation does its partnerships that it has to help people are best exemplified through things like the dial a carol when our listeners our great listeners who um who care so much about our province open their wallets and help out. Thank you so much for all of that. It means a great deal, and it will make a difference. Now, let's talk about some issues you may want to talk about today. What about those cost-of-living checks? We're hopefully going to get the finance minister on later this morning to give us an update on all of that, but you heard Brian in the news say that there's approximately, I believe, 100,000 checks that have gone out, $500 uh, each. Uh, of course, those checks announced earlier in the fall, they were to help offset the economic challenge individuals are having through the uh, inflationary period, through these tough economic times. Uh, they've gone out the door. I interviewed different people who work with uh, poverty advocacy organizations, who work with food banks, to say, yeah, they're, they're helpful, but more needs to be done. If you're comfortable, because it's a matter of privacy, and you got a check, and you want to share about, is the check making a difference for you? I'd, I'd love to hear. I've heard all the experts, but I, I don't think I've talked. I may have talked to a recipient, but I've not talked to a, a recipient about um, receiving the money because he just, just got it and how that may or may not be making a difference. Also, from a policy perspective, what do you think about it? I know when I was home uh, last month, I heard a lot about this. This is one area now. Bear in mind, I was talking to a lot of townies in St. John's. 
uh, who make reasonable livings who were not very happy with this particular initiative, didn't think it was the right initiative, thought that we went down the wrong path, uh, the government went down the wrong path because Newfoundlanders and Labradorians were generally getting through things, <clears throat> and this was creating a dangerous precedent that future checks would be required. If we're going to go down this path, maybe we needed some form of guaranteed income, which is something different governments have talked about and initiated in different fashions, but haven't gotten there. Where are you on that now? Um, wh what do you think about this check? And what are you hearing about it? One of the things that was brought forward to my attention, if I do get the finance minister on, I will ask her about it, is you know, it's quite likely MHAs are recipients of, of this check uh, because of the salary confinements. It's 120, under $120,000 or less, you can receive this check. The basic salary of a member of the House of Assembly is around $90,000, if my memory is correct. I don't know, that all seems kind of strange. That's not to say MHAs aren't suffering, but politically that's a hard one to, to square anyway we'll, we we will pursue that want to get your your take on all of that and how you're faring right now with christmas upon us uh with the federal government saying no for forcefully to newfoundland's request for home heating oil being exempted from carbon pricing big news story of course last week federal government has now brought its carbon pricing backstop to the province now the good side speaking of checks is you get a check starting in july uh you can max out i believe at 1312 dollars or something to that effect don't know if that's gonna heat your home or help heat your home over the course of the winter you heard in our news, of course, that there are more conversions happening, people moving away from home heating oil, 800 over the past year. But the data I saw said we had 48,000 homes that are he using heating oil to uh, make sure that their, their, their home is warm and, and they're able to live. 800 is a great number, <clears throat> but that would, excuse me for a second, let me take some water. That... <clears throat> That would still suggest that there are uh, nearly 47,000 homes, 47,200, if that 48,000 is right, that still have home heating oil requirements, and they're not going to go away overnight. And, of course, to convert costs money as well, Those are federal, though there is a federal subsidy program for that. What do you think about that? Where are you on this? Does this create political opportunity for the provincial and federal conservatives who have both roundly condemned the Trudeau carbon pricing, or as they call it, carbon tax plan? I keep hearing from different people about how the federal conservatives are on the rise in Newfoundland and Labrador, and one of the reasons they're on the rise is around this issue. You'll remember, again, earlier in the fall, Liberal MP from Avalon, Ken McDonald, voted against a, or voted with, I should say, a conservative motion to pause or axe the carbon tax, as they call it. This is a pretty central issue in the province. It's, from my estimation, the first time uh, the provincial government, Premier Fury and Prime Minister Trudeau have had a real set to scrap, if you will, that's a better word, scrap on the issue. The provincial government not happy that uh, they've been put into the federal plan after requesting some relief from all of that. Where are you on the politics of all that? Is that going to influence the way you are going to vote or 
will it have no bearing on it whatsoever? That is a key issue I'd love to get into today. Now, a couple of other things that I want to talk about. This one has really caused me some pause and reflection, and we're going to talk to the executive director of Iris Kirby House in a few minutes uh, about this particular story. Michelle Greens, who is that executive director, was on our news uh, talking about the critical capacity overcapacity, um, lack of capacity, I should say, challenges that Iris Kirby and Shaughnessy House and Carbonier are having, that there just isn't enough space and uh, ability to provide service to people who are seeking these services. And of course, those who seek services from Kirby House and O'Shaughnessy House come from very difficult domestic violence situations. Often, they are in need of shelter. They are in need of food. They are in need of security. They are in need of escape. And with our facilities full, that makes it near impossible for them to find safe escape. You heard, to be fair, Minister John Abbott, the Minister of Social Affairs, on in our newscast saying that the government will respond. They will find them hotel rooms. They will uh, will make sure nobody is is left unprotected. That's a stopgap measure. While I'm sure it is appreciated as a stopgap measure, it's still pretty concerning. I am no expert in this area, but I do know and have read often that, of course, this time of year, as we head into the holiday season, on top of the economic circumstances on top of pandemic recovery on top of all the other trauma that we're dealing with is a time when violence can spike people's safety can be in greater peril michelle is going to walk us through what is happening what can be done why we're here and where we need to go i mean and this is not just a newfoundland and labrador issue it's a national issue uh, you hear all across the land, whether it be the need for more housing, the need for more support service uh, of all manner, from food bank to um, social safety net. It's tough out there, and it is really perilous for those who are vulnerable. Michelle will join us right after the break. And before we go to the break, I um, just want to say this. If you want to talk about this whole Emergencies Act drama in Ottawa and whether there is drama, whether the Prime Minister who closed out the, uh, the testimony did himself a favor, the government a favor, happy to talk about that. That seems to be so off the radar in everywhere but here in Ottawa where I am today. But it's an important conversation to have given it was the first time the Emergencies Act was invoked, and, and given there were Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who were involved in many facets of this, happy to talk about that. Now, before I go to that break, remember, you can get me on open line at VOCM.com or on Twitter at Powers Tim. And when we come back, Michelle Green from the Iris Kirby House. Tim Powers in for Patty. I got two Greg Smiths in my ear. I get the taped one and the real one. So, you know, it's Greg Smith squared here today. I'm pretty lucky. A less humorous issue, uh, and one that really struck me this morning when I heard about it, is the, the struggle that Iris Kirby House, O'Shaughnessy House, and anybody who's in the world of providing shelter and safety to domestic violence survivors 
um, are having. And it's, I'm pleased to have on to talk about this this morning, Michelle Green, who's the executive director of the Iris Kirby House. Michelle, how are you? Good morning, Tim. I'm good, thank you. Um, I, I, I really was, I guess I'm not surprised, but it was still sort of startling to hear this morning, uh, Michelle, you're at full capacity, O'Shaughnessy House is at full capacity, uh, I'm assuming I'm generally right in saying we're coming into a season where your services are even called upon more. I, how do we get here and where do we need to go, Michelle? I'll just start with those simple questions for you. So... Uh, just for full disclosure, we are not mm -hmm. at capacity right now today. Okay. We have okay. uh, we have some beds today, so we are a moving okay. target. Most okay. of the time, we are at capacity, but I want to be totally transparent that today we are not. Now, okay. tonight might be a different story, but there were beds available when I came in this morning. Uh, so how did we get here? Things snowballed very, very fast. And I think it was almost... Uh, um, an intersection of so many social problems that were very much highlighted by the pandemic. We have seen an increase in the type of violence and with any kind of animal, humans being no different, you bar them up for two years and tell them they're in danger. There's going to be a change in how we experience life. And I think people have experienced that change. And in part, we have seen an increase in the type and the frequency of violence. So I think that is one factor in how we got here. I think another factor in how we got here is the housing crisis. I can't tell you um, the reasons why we have a housing crisis, but I can tell you when women come here, they absolutely cannot find suitable, affordable places to live. So I think that's another reason. There's also the inflationary rates. Mm -hmm. We cannot afford groceries and housing and clothing without having an increase in social assistance rates or an increase in the minimum wage. Now, there has been incremental increases in the minimum wage, mm -hmm. and that has been, I, I can't even say that's been helpful. That's been, that's just, I'm acknowledging it, that there right. is some, you know, some people are trying to do a response. So it's almost like a perfect storm. And people are just, there's a continuum. And people are somewhere on that continuum. One of the things that I think is really not understood is that there, the continuum of why people don't have a roof over their head ra range from things like domestic violence and right along uh, to mm -hmm. can't afford it to mm -hmm. homelessness because of chronic issues. So it's a very complex how we got here. Tell me... <laughs> How do we, how do we address? I mean, there are a number of stages of addressing this. I guess there are the short-term measures and there are the long-term. A lot of federal political parties, provincial parties, political parties have talked about housing, but houses don't get built overnight, as we all know. That's a multiple jurisdictional issue too, because it involves municipalities and the freeing up of land. But in the immediate term, so for the next month, Michelle. What needs to happen to make sure the people that are seeking shelter and needing safe environments are cared for so that the risk I heard you talk about in the news of uh, something extremely serious happening, not that what is happening is not serious and not, not difficult for people, can be managed to use not a very emotional term, but a realistic one in these circumstances? 
The short-term solution sounds quite simple, Tim. It's put roofs over people's heads. But Mm -hmm. there are so many folks who are not able to manage to live independently with a roof over their head. So, yes, build more houses. But I think there needs to be support services that exist in conjunction with that. So people aren't able to just pick up and go from here or the gathering place or Naomi Center or any of the places where there's a roof over people's heads to live independently. And in homelessness, St. John is aware of that and are doing things for that. So I think there's, it, there's not one. In the next month, people need a roof over their head, but they also need people to help them learn how to live with that roof over their head. So there is, um, there has to be, even in the next month, there has to be a multi-pronged approach. We have a, a you know, great facility, and but if we just gave women this facility to live in mm-hmm. without having support staff, many yeah. women would not know how to live because they don't know how, to, they've never learned how to cook or they've never learned how to parent. It is, uh, it's almost like we have reached just this explosive stage and all the bits are out there at the end of the explosion, but you can't go back to what we had. So while short term, there needs to be supportive services in addition to housing. And I want to highlight here, we have an incredibly positive working Mm -hmm. relationship with municipal and provincial governments. Minister Abbas has met with me. He is, he is very caring. He's very concerned. He's very responsive as are his officials in homelessness. But one of the things that seems to be missing in the, in the general community, as well as in our client community, is that homelessness and domestic violence are two separate issues. Mm-hmm. And they seem to be getting muddy because people need a roof over their heads. And I really want to be able to highlight that there, it's a continuum of housing needs. It's a continuum of why people don't have a roof over their head. And while I'm grateful for the platform to talk about that, uh, my, my mandate is to help women yes. and children who are exposed to domestic violence. And I'm not able to do that often because the homeless crisis is overshadowing the number of beds we have. As it relates to the, your service mandate, which you just spoke well about, women and, and children seeking shelter from domestic violence, can you historically situate this moment, Michelle? Is this the worst you've ever seen? Where where do we sit right now so, again, people can understand some of the context of, of which you speak and of which you work? It's a really interesting uh, lens to look at it through, Tim, because it is very difficult to tease out how many women here are fleeing domestic violence and how many women staying at the transition house are actually homeless. Women who are in need are so resourceful. So in order to get a roof over their head, people will say whatever needs to be said to to meet the mandates. Mm -hmm. We don't make people prove that they are fleeing Mm -hmm. domestic violence. So in terms of is it more challenging now? Absolutely. But I can't tell you which of the stories are real and which of the stories are as a survival mechanism. I can tell you we are seeing unprecedented numbers of calls, unprecedented numbers of people staying here 
and certainly have never seen the number of turnaways that we've done. I've been here five years, but even prior to that, staff who have been here for extended periods of time, they have never seen that either. We have turned a corner into, we are in the muddied waters as well. So we know that the need has increased exponentially, but I can no longer tease out what is domestic violence and what is homelessness. Which also makes your job so much more difficult as well because policy makers want you to be able to do that uh, so that they can dictate and determine funding around all of that. I just want to ask you oh, two last questions, Michelle, because I appreciate you have more important work to do than talking to me this morning. The first is um, I appreciate what you say about Minister Abbott. I've met him as well. I agree. I find him to be a very compassionate person. Uh, when I hear him say he's responding to this, again, I don't doubt that. But my 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 senses started to tingle a little bit when he said one of the tools they may use is finding hotel rooms for people who need shelter. Is there more risk in that or is that safer? Because my concern would be if you're giving somebody a hotel room, particularly in a, a person who is um, looking to escape domestic violence, that may be easy enough, particularly in a major city, to find out where that person is. So that, are they safer? Well, the resources are what's needed. Okay. So putting anybody, whether it's a person who's experienced domestic violence or a person who is homeless, putting them in a hotel is further isolating them. So okay. they don't have resources. They don't have groceries. It's, it is a very stopgap measure. It is keeping them off the street and keeping them from freezing to death, which is certainly fabulous. But it is it is the very the very least um, desirable situation, but the very best that he can offer at this point as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and again, thank you for giving that context because uh, I think people like me hear that and they're wondering, okay, why? But you've given us the why and what it can do. Last question, and this station is always very, or the people who listen to the station, I say, are always very good at being helpful to people who need help. How can the listeners help the Iris Kirby House and the O'Shaughnessy House? Well, right now we are, you know, experiencing a demand. Now, as I said, you know, I don't want to sensationalize anything that's not real. We do have rooms today. So we can start to, I'm not looking for donations or monetary things, mm -hmm. but we can start to think about the difference between intimate partner violence, domestic violence, and homelessness. And that not everyone is on one end of that continuum or the other. If you think your neighbor needs a hand, Give them a hand. Maybe we can, uh, this probably sounds very cliche, Tim, but maybe we can start with kindness and understanding. We have deviated from that as a society significantly from what I see even over the last five years. We're very quick to criticize. We're very quick to label. So people, whether they're experiencing domestic violence or they're experiencing homelessness, on that continuum, we need understanding. And maybe our listeners can start by being understanding, starting to ask the questions, why are we here? What has happened? And if you know someone who's experiencing domestic violence, support them, give them a number, give them the, a quiet place to have a conversation, connect them with the Intimate Partner Violence Unit at the Warren of Lang Constabulary. They're an amazing group. And they actually may be able to speak more eloquently to how many people are experiencing domestic violence, because we only see the people who don't have a roof over their head. There is a plethora of people yeah. who have uh, experienced intimate partner violence, but have somewhere to go or have the resources. 
I I can't agree with you more on uh, kindness. You are so right. Uh, we are in a societal deficit around kindness, and with it, as you uh, articulately point out, comes understanding. Here, here, good message. Uh, we'll be paying attention, Michelle, and the, the airwaves are always yours to uh, continue to tell this important story and find ways to find solutions. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Tim. All right, that was Michelle Green, the Executive Director of the Iris Kirby House. Important conversation. If you want to weigh in, please do. Um, I'd love to keep this one going to, to try and generate some more understanding and context and uh, get something done if we can on the policy front. All right, we're going to take a break here. When we come back, Lisa, you're up next, and then it's you, Perry, here on VOCM's Open Line. Welcome back to Open Line. That was a, a very helpful conversation, at least I thought so, uh, with uh, Michelle Green from Iris Kirby House. As I say, if you have something you'd like to contribute on that, please give us a call. Um, such a, a deep, difficult subject, but one we do need to pay more attention to. Now, I'm going to go to Lisa March. Uh, I believe, Lisa, you're in Bishop Falls, or you're helping in Bishop Falls. How are you this morning? Uh, good. Um, I just wanted to correct my name. It's Lisa Marsh, M-A-R-S-H. You know and what, Lisa? It is written down here that way. I read it the wrong way. I'm sorry. My apologies. That's, that's perfect. I, I just want to be clear who I am. And I am actually in St. John's again this morning. Oh, my God. I got it all wrong this morning. You're okay. I did, I did, go, I did go to Central is where the situation okay. that we're talking about has evolved. It's okay. where my sister Denise is living. And I just want to say it was interesting listening to Michelle Green's take on the vulnerable seniors that live in Newfoundland and Labrador, because that's exactly the thing that I want to talk about again this morning. Um, I want to do a follow-up as to my sister, Denise. She is a person who is 58-year-old, and she's living with an intellectual disability. And my take on the government health has been very different than Michelle's. I have not had the compassion and the kindness and the foresight for someone to be easy to to, to, uh, talk to about this situation. However, after some media coverage, I did get a meeting. I was four months trying to get a meeting with anybody in government. I didn't get a meeting with anybody who had decision-making authority. The meeting actually didn't go as I had hoped. It wasn't a great meeting for me. They came to the table with no new offer. They did reiterate the offer that they gave the home care worker, uh, one that we had rejected at the time. Uh, it doesn't come close to offering her a fair wage for her to provide the 24-hour care that my sister actually requires. We did the numbers, and I mean, anybody who's working in home care generally tends to be a female or somebody, uh, you know, like that. And I don't know if they felt that we wouldn't be able to figure out the numbers, but it's, it's honestly frustrating, infuriating, and most definitely insulting. They do something called an offer, an ALC home. So they do something under the umbrella of block funding. The wage that it works out to be paid per hour for 24-hour care that my sister requires is $4.88. That was so insulting. Now, they, they say... J- well, Jalisa, let, let, me just, let me just stop you here for a sec. So can you give us some context to where you got that data and... and qualify some of those acronyms ALC is I assume something okay. long term long term care no ALC is an alternate care home so you okay you, when somebody has nowhere to go and live they can go to something called an ALC which is okay. not care home where you're not living with family I might add okay thank you so in and the data where'd you get the data on the salaries 
we did it up with the offer that was presented to the home care worker. So they okay. for an offer. And it's under the umbrella that it's not an hourly wage. It's something called okay. block funding. And apparently they gave her the top that you could get. It's ridiculous. So we said, well, you know, she's still working the 16 full hours a day. So we did up the amount of pay that she would receive. So I'll, I'll break it down for you. Please. You receive a certain amount of money. Then you times it by the amount of uh, weeks in a month. So we did. So her pay worked out to be six. $625. Then you took that and you said, okay, so since we, we did 24 hours a day care that Denise requires, that's the piece that I think is missing with the government. They don't seem to acknowledge, they know Denise needs an extensive amount of care, but they will not commit to the 24-hour day care. But you're still doing it whether you're getting paid for it or not. So we broke down the amount of hours. There's 168 hours in a week. They did provide 40 hours of respite care for someone else to do. We took that off. It gave her 128 hours of care that she was responsible for. So you divide your 128 hours into your pay, and you get $4.88. It is tax-free, so I think the actual salary would be closer to $6 an hour. Far below the minimum wage. This is a female that you're asking to work for these wages. They call they, they include it under the umbrella of this is a block funding. It's not an hourly wage. But you're still working for the same amount of hours no matter what you put it under. So we were very insulted. And we did explain that this was not adequate pay for the amount of work. So their solution to that is if it was not adequate pay for her and that she did uh, need more to pay her bills and live, uh, uh, you know, be able to, to afford to live, then what they would do is, they gave the 40 hours of respite care because they do recognize that Denise needs help. Mm -hmm. One person cannot do this. Then she should go to work in that time. I, I was just infuriated. It was like banging my head against a brick wall, to be honest with you. So, so just so just it's, it's fascinating listening to this because I, I have an aunt in long-term care here in Ottawa, and I could attest to everything you're saying except maybe the salary base, but I anecdotally yeah. it's probably very similar it's generally dominated by uh women they work hard they work um, you know they they suffer through yes. a lot of things trying to care for patients we all talk a big game about changing what's happening in long-term care or alternative long-term care and nothing happens so as you look at your sister's circumstances you call today what what do you think we need what does the focus need to be from uh, the governments who fund fund long-term care to well, address the circumstance well this is this uh, i'll be very clear if my sister denise had to go to long-term care it would cost the government two hundred and eighteen thousand dollars i didn't get the numbers out of my head jim din's office actually helped me navigate that and there are some good people in government that are willing to step up and support you but it's hard to yep. get meetings with the people that can change these policies and make them so that these vulnerable citizens, and Denise, my sister, who lives with many, many disabilities, is the most vulnerable that we do have out there. She can do literally nothing for herself. So if she were to end up in long-term care, she would cost the government much, much, much more money than my solution. She wouldn't be as safe and she wouldn't be able to be looked after to quite the same extent that this person is able to do and willing to do. 
you know. Also, I'm going to say this, which I was mortified at in the meeting, is that because I was talking about the pay for this person, it was suggested that I was more concerned about that, which is definitely not the case. I am concerned about her pay because the pay that this person receives directly affects my sister's living situation. So the other thing that they asked, and said to do. I have so much I could say on the volume. Yeah, at least I got to give you about one more minute if you can okay, wrap it up. I'm going to put Please. this in there. What they did say is that this person could actually go to work during the 40 hours. So not oh only could she gosh. work for 16 hours a day looking after Denise, she could actually do eight hours a day somewhere else or somewhere. So she could literally work for 24 hours a day as far as they were concerned and provide adequate care. It is frightening. Yeah. I want to say that the vulnerable society out there is absolutely ridiculous, and I want the government to step up and do the right thing. I will tell you, one of the things that be said for this particular government is that, um, I just want to sum it up, the Health Accord Newfoundland and Labrador Seniors Advocate called for measures to allow seniors to age in place. I believe the proposal that I made for Denise's care would allow her to live independently safe and not be passed from pillar to post in this situation. I just want her to be mm -hmm. safe, and I don't know how much louder I can say it. Thank you for the platform. Thank you to the people that are helping assist me. But if you want change for people, whether it's people living in an Iris Kirby house under a domestic abuse situation or seniors that are vulnerable and at the mercy of government, please call. Change the policies. It could be any of us one of these days. We need to support our people. We need them safe. It could be any of us. Please help everybody in this vulnerable situation. Call. Yeah. Lisa, your your sister's lucky to have you for an advocate, as are others. I think you're you're right. Uh, we do know, that, to put it very simply, uh, and there's nothing wrong with being one. The squeaky wheel gets the oil, and good on you for being the squeaky wheel and and be louder. Thanks for your call thank today. Thank you. I need your support. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that was Lisa Marsh from St. John's telling us about the circumstances surrounding her sister and uh, the challenges uh, they're encountering with alternative long-term care funding and the like. All right, now we're going to go to line three. Perry Smith, you've been waiting. How are you, Perry? Good day, sir. Uh, I'm dyslexia. I can't read and write proper, okay. so I'll try to explain this best way I know how. I get many health problems. I've had appointments made by the doctors here and prefer me to specialists. And I got the social assistants, the ones up the tinkster, the top top, make the decisions. And they're canceling my uh, appointments to the specialists that I need. So I had a giant attack. And he canceled my appointment for to get me checked on my heart and everything. I wonder who gives them such authority to tell the doctors they don't know what they're doing. We're trying to get doctors to stay here. Yeah. Just, so how did you end up going there, Paul? How did you end up in a place where these people were making a decision on your treatment? It's only just by talking to them on the phone. And yeah. they figure she talks to a doctor, they uh, converts with, uh, you know, gets her his opinion. And what he says, well, okay. go. And okay. I don't think there's a doctor out there got every qualification for everything. No, no, you're, we got specialists on one thing and one thing only. So where where did your family doctor or or a GP you used at a clinic factor in here? Because usually it's those um, 
uh, your primary care physicians who try and get you these specialist appointments. Where were they in this, or were they involved in this? Well, that's well, like I said, I got their family doctor in Springville, okay. and I was referred to uh, uh, Doctor House, and she's a specialist. Okay, she's good, and she's a good doctor, but she referred me a heart, to a heart specialist. They so did, you did have a doctor's referral to a heart specialist. Okay, keep going, please. And they canceled the whole system because it was costing too much money. Is that right? Yeah, and I'm getting me Canada disability. I'm only getting two twenty-five okay. from the social system, you call it. And he canceled. That, that should have no bearing on what treatment you get. How what what your financial lot in life is is irrelevant right. in our publicly oh. health care system, right? Right. And I say the iPhone. Uh, I mean. Uh, MHAs, uh, PC, Liberal, NDP, don't make a difference. There's no good to try to talk them. They won't pick up the phone. And Fury, you won't talk to me unless I'm a billionaire. So I was supposed to. We put in as people. We put in there. And now we're nothing but dirt under the feet. I'm, I, I mean, I, I don't want to uh, look for special attention, but I am dying for my time. Mm-hmm. And I can't. Get nobody to understand. The only one out there really fighting for me is Brian's war secretary. I don't hear nothing from Brian. He must be gone Florida. But yeah, Brian, is Brian your MHA? He is, isn't he? Yeah. Yes, yes, sir. Okay. And she's the only one that's fighting. And I don't understand. I told her this time when I go see specialists, I have to fight again. No, she said, that's only foolishness. And this whole system wants me to give letters from the doctors, and every letter cost me $50. I wouldn't think what money I got. Yeah. I can't work. My wife can't work. I work well, you're for fighting a-, a war against the health care system, a system that's supposed to be helping you, not making you worse. Yeah, it's a bit ironic, to say the least. Yeah, and it's ones on social systems making the choices, not the doctors. <laughs> I don't know where to get authority. Well, I, again, I need some more information there, but ultimately a doctor should determine, one doctor referral should determine another uh, uh, to a doctor, and then another doctor should determine whether he or she needs to see you or not, and then there's all sorts of things underneath all of that. That's generally how most of us understand that. All right, well, Perry, you're welcome to call back here again. Uh, we will, you know, if our producer hears anything, We'll, uh, we'll let you know. We have your number. Uh, keep fighting. See if you can get Brian Ward himself on the phone and, and keep pushing. That seems to be the way you got to go about this. Yes, because this is, like I said, this is three years I've been sick. I yeah, had that's not right, man. I had a giant attack. All the was concerned because I was in Sheffield, not Kings Point. I was too far. The only other way, you know what? This will make some people mad, but that's okay. You can go in an emergency room and try and make the case that you need assistance now, and hopefully the emergency room physicians will be as responsive to you as they can based on everything else that is there. But you do have to get attention when you're in an emergency room. doesn't mean they can't move you on, but you might want to try that approach. Okay, sir. All right. Thank you, Perry. Thank you for your time. Yes. All right. That was, uh, was Perry Smith, too fascinating calls about the state of our health care system which is not great not improving being lost again at the moment don't forget there's still no agreement between the provinces and the premier um sorry the provinces and the prime minister over health care funding would that make an immediate difference to Perry's circumstances likely not or uh, lisa's sister's circumstances likely not but 
we got to get that resolved as well, too. All right, time for a break here. Then we're coming back with Paul Lane here on VOCM's Open Line. Welcome back to Open Line. We've got a full show for you this morning. Strange, the politicians are calling while, while, while I'm on. I think they like talking to me. Oh, well, and we've got one of them now, Paul Lane uh, from Mount Pearl Southlands Independent MHA. Paul, how are you? I'm great, Tim, and it's always great to talk to you, although uh, I'm, no, I'm pretty much known that I'll talk to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, you're killing me there. Listen, I'm just looking at your Twitter feed. i got to say this. That's great you tweeting about this U9 team, the boil-ups. I coach a U9 team here in Ottawa called the Red Sharks. Maybe we'll have to have an exhibition game between the Red Sharks and the boil-ups, and we'll give the proceeds to the gathering place, too. What do you think of that? I think that would be fantastic. And, you know, Tim, uh, that's one of the things about sports. And, and yeah. certainly certainly we see it a lot in Mount Pearl. I'm sure you see it yeah. uh, through it. Uh, but, but uh, you know, in addition to the actual sport itself, we see so many sporting organizations step up, whether it be uh, Christmas time or other times of the year, to uh, get involved in the community and help the community. And it teaches a lot of great life lessons. And uh, it's one of the things that you don't necessarily think about when you think, think about putting your kids in sports, but it's a very important part of it. Yeah, we uh, it's so fulfilling. You're absolutely right, and that's part of learning about being on a team. And look, been lots of controversy about Hockey Canada, and rightly so, but I have to say, at this level of hockey, when the kids are just getting into it, they just want to have fun, they want to enjoy it, and the involvement of the parents makes such a difference because there's balance and it, it's all about community. Anyway, we could go on about that, but I know you want to talk about some other things. What's on your mind today, Paul? Yeah, uh, I wanted to talk about the uh, carbon tax and the <laughs> carbon tax announcement, I guess, by uh, by Minister O'Regan, I guess. Uh, certainly and Gibo, to be fair, it eventually came from Gibo, and then Minister O'Regan reinforced it. But anyway, go ahead. Correct, correct. correct. And, and I'm specifically talking about, I guess, here in Newfoundland, Labrador, and, and the reaction. Um, so, yeah, so, uh, I, I mean, Tim, <sighs> look, I, I, I question the carbon tax period. Uh, and, and I have since day one, as have some of my colleagues, um, because, you know, and, and I know just people will say, statistically, if you look at the stats, that uh, uh, if you tax something, that it, it can influence uh, consumption and so on. But I do look at the fact that certainly there's, pe there's a lot of people I know who, you know, would say, uh, it really hasn't changed anything, um, you know, if you're taxing me at the pumps or whatever. Uh, because I still have to go to work, I still have things I'm going to do, and all you're doing is, is costing me more money to do it. Um, but but so 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 I question the carbon tax in general. But in terms of the announcement uh, that, that that came out and the fact that uh, um, you know the federal government is now going to be taking care of, I guess, the administration of the tax and so on. Uh, I do question some of the math, and I'm not up on all the details about how exactly it's going to work and how much money people are going to receive compared to how much additional money they're going to be uh, spending, uh, especially right. when, it, uh, when it comes on home heating fuel and so on. Plus, it's going to be going up on, at the pumps as well. Um, but I, I just want to comment, I guess, on the fact that I did listen to, I guess, the premier and a couple of the ministers and so on in our provincial government. Uh, you know, who, uh, you know, took the stand supposedly saying, uh, you know, this is not the time for all these increases, people are suffering and so on. And I just want to point out the fact uh, that 
you know, that those statements come across pretty disingenuous to me, given the fact uh, that myself and other members have been saying this for the last uh, couple of years in the House Assembly, while the money was going into provincial government coffers. And I do question, uh, is the concern by the provincial government really around the fact that uh, they're concerned about uh, you know, people not being able to afford carbon tax and, and or lost revenue, or is it about lost revenue? And 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 that that's a part of the the story or the discussion that really hasn't been out there to a, a great deal, a great deal. But I think it's important to note that. And the reality of it is, is that uh, whether the checks, these quarterly checks, cover it or not, and and for some people, you know, maybe it will. For others, maybe it won't. But at the end of the day, at least something is going back to the people. Uh, whereas in the past two years, it's just been going into the general coffers of the provincial government. And that's yeah, important. It, where, where you're, I mean, your theory has some interest, and that's true. No government likes to lose revenue, uh, particularly yep. when their service demands are increasing. So it's a fair right. assessment or, or thought to put out there. <laughs> but I think the, the broader politics in this, Paul, might also be around right now nobody wants to be on the wrong side of the public when it comes to costs that they're bearing yeah i mean i find it fascinating politically because it seems to me and i may be wrong here but this is the first kind of dust up between the fury government and the trudeau government and the premier seems comfortable with this dust up because i think he understands as you understand what it uh what kind of anger people are going to have when all of a sudden they're paying more on, the, on, on heating their home, particularly over the next number of months when everything else is so expensive and we're hitting, in, hitting a recession, quite likely. Well, that's exactly right, Tim. And the fact of the matter is is that, look, there are some people who are making, uh, you know, uh, good incomes and so on that are able to, quote-unquote, suck it up. Uh, I would put myself in that category and fortunate enough to be able to, to do it. Uh, I, I pay extra begrudgingly, but I can still manage to do it. But uh, I talked to so many people in my district and throughout the province who contacted me who are literally, uh, they've gone beyond living paycheck to paycheck. They've actually, they, they were on the fringes, um, you know, two years ago, and now they've gone over the edge. And so any time you introduce the idea of uh, additional um, uh, of, of additional cost uh, to them, yeah. uh, then people are going to get very angry, and and they may not even consider the fact uh, that yes, they're going to get some of these checks back that may that may I say may uh, make them whole, or or it, it, it you know they're saying some people will be better off. I I, <laughs> I question that one. We'll have to wait and see how how it goes. And they're saying at least two. They're saying at least uh, two out of ten are going to be worse off, and I I question that. I think it'll be a lot more than two out of ten worse off. But at the end of the day, well, and they also, Paul, I just want to stop is, you here, just a yeah. sec, because it's an important point you're raising. Sure. It's sure. a bit like the 500 bucks that the province is giving out now for people uh, making 120 thousand dollars or less. You have to have your income tax filed as well, because the only way the federal government can give you that money is to know where you are and to see what your uh, your income tax filing has been like to do just that. So that's an important part of this as uh, the aspect of this program. Yeah, it, 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 it is, Tim, and uh, of, of course the $500 is coming directly from the province. It's not actually going yes. through CRP, and that's why it's going directly no. 
<laughs> right, but you they but you do have to have filed an income an income you have to have filed your income tax so they know what your actual earnings were to give you the amount or not give you the amount. That 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 is that is correct. And I I, I guess Tim, just to finish it off and to sort of reiterate the point uh, I just wanted to make here is that uh a lot of people are hurting. Um this uh, program may while it may be uh, well intentioned by the federal government um, you know, there's people who are not going to be able to afford to pay up front. And it's fine to say you're going to get a check for a hundred bucks or a couple of hundred bucks in July. Um, I mean, that, that presupposes that I have the ability to put that $200 mm-hmm. in a bank account somewhere and hang on to it until the winter. And you and I uh, know uh, the reality of it is that's probably not going to happen. Yeah. So there are going to be pressures on a lot of people. Some people will be able to, uh, as I say, uh, manage it uh, and pay the extra begrudgingly. Uh, some people um, are, are, are indeed going to be worse off, but and some may and some may be a little better off. But at the end of the day, people are struggling now. And uh, again, I find the commentary about a provincial government somewhat disingenuous when I consider the fact that they had no problem in taxing people and applying this carbon tax to the citizens of Newfoundland and Labrador for the last two years while the money was going into provincial coffers. Now that mm-hmm. it'll be going <clears throat> to the feds and they're going to give it back to people, now they have the problem. So yeah. I, that's a point I think that uh, cannot be lost. All right. I appreciate the call, Paul. You take care. Thank you all the very best, Tim. Have a Merry all Christmas. Right. I'll uh, talk to you between now and then. Thank you very much, you too. That's Paul Lane, the uh, MHA for uh, Mount Pearl Southlands. I'm going to try and get my voice fixed here. Time for the news here on VOCM's Open Line. Chill of minus 14 in Goose Bay. My goodness, winter is upon us. Well, we're going to go to Labrador right now. Uh, Not Goose Bay, but the other part of the uh, lovely land and that the big land and that's labrador west we're going to talk in a moment to mha jordan brown but i just got to tell you i always think it's important to talk labrador when i'm on this show got lots of roots there always enjoy talking to jordan and others from labrador so i'm going to bring him on jordan brown mha labrador west are you there thank you for the warm welcome uh, tim well, is it minus 14? Where are you, Wabush Lab City today? Or are you in I'm in Wabush this morning, and it's, uh, you know, it's windy and snowy and, you know, just very <laughs> typical Labrador weather. Well, there you go. They're well, soon people will be out. Are they out in their snow machines already or not? Oh, I already hauled mine. I hauled mine the garage yesterday. It's all good. Oh, there you go. Okay, good. Good man. Now, listen, Labrador Crunch, they're not a rock band. They're not a hockey team. Uh, it's a reality that you're living with. Explain this notion of crunch, as our news writers have dis, uh, described it, and what you're experiencing in, uh, in Lab West and how that's impacting your community's ability to operate. Yeah, so right now, like, and it's, it's, it's been a building thing for quite some time. Right now, um, I, as a resident, like residents here, we do not have enough residents here to operate Lab West to its full capacity. Um, we have, you know, we're, like just like the rest of the province, we do have shortage of healthcare professionals. We have a shortage of educational professionals. Uh, we have a shortage of, you know, the service industry, the mining industry. There's a lot of vacancies uh, in in the region, and it's causing a shortage of all kinds of different sort of services. And right now, um, we have people who want to move here, and they just can't. 
Why? Just because the service provision isn't there for them, and they're not—they're making a choice based on the it, options. It's like the perfect storm has okay. happened. Um, we have a shortage of affordable housing, and because we have a shortage of affordable housing, there's less people coming to the area, or who can actually have the ability to move to the area. Because, you know, in order to come here, you don't start off with the great, you know, high-paying mining jobs right no. away, and you have to come with money in hand to purchase or rent. And so, right now, people can't move to Lab West because they just don't have the money in their pocket to put down for a four hundred, five hundred thousand dollar house that was built in the 1960s. So that's so that's one hindrance there. You also have a hindrance of services. Um, so obviously newcomers that come to this country have to get medicals, have to do all that. We don't have the healthcare professionals to provide that right now in this region. So they're looking at this region going, oh, well, I can't get my medical, I can't get this. What's the point of coming? So we're, it's a combination of so many different factors. It's actually hindering the ability for Labrador West to attract new people and grow our community. We just don't have the availability. And because the biggest you know, perpetrator, I guess, of it all is is affordable housing. We just don't have affordable housing in this region. In, in days of yore, uh, mining companies used to build housing. They'd bring in the health professionals. They'd make sure that the infrastructure they needed to make their businesses succeed happened. And certainly the IOC, as I recall, and, and other mining entities have spent in the past money in, in Lab West to do that. That's not happening now, or they've capped out on what they do? They've Explain that to me, Jake. It seems that after so many years, and now that they don't, like at the time when Lab West was created, we weren't our own town. We were a right. We're just no different than what Churchill Falls is today. We were a camp. And then when we gained our, I guess, independence and became mm -hmm. municipalities, a lot of those services started getting downloaded onto the communities. Okay. And that is, you know, and that's it. We, we have, a, we have a, you know, duly elected councils and all that stuff, and we have democracy and all that. And that's fine. But at the same time, yes, there is a place for the mining industry to also look after them. And, they, and to a point, they do. If you work for the Iron Ore Company of Canada and they attract you, they have units available. They have all that kind of, mm -hmm. this, all that stuff. But not for the lovely person that works at Tim Hortons or that lovely person that works up in the mall. Yeah. There is no plan for them. There is no recruitment package for these people. And that's the hard part of it because they are a part of our community. We need those workers too. We need, we need a whole broad spectrum of different people to work in this community and make this community thrive. But because of the lack of affordable housing, the lack of services in healthcare, the lack of services in education, we are now finding ourselves in a situation where we just don't have enough people to operate Labrador West. And if, if I'm right, uh, I certainly was talking to some people at Tech Resources last week. I mean, the mining industry writ large is in a much better place than it was before, uh, certainly a couple of years ago, and rare earth minerals are certainly in a very good place. So uh, is, there, is there any opportunity back to the where industry fits here, an incentive for industry to work with political figures, to work with the province and the federal government to build this infrastructure that's needed? Because it would be in everybody's in interest to do that, it would seem. It, it needs to be a whole holistic housing plan is what really needs to happen here. And I'm going to tell you, so the town of Labor City put out RFPs for two subdivisions, and they got crickets back. The town of Wabush has been trying to sell land to developers. Same okay. thing, crickets. What it is is... It's the whole notion that it's a little more in Labrador, which is a which is a misnomer because it's right. not really. We are we are a twelve hour drive from Quebec City. This this whole misnomer of more and more Labrador. It's I, I honestly believe 
it, it is just a gouging tactic, just like everything else that seems to be in today's society with food and other stuff. It's a gouging tactic because right now it's a 12-hour drive from Lab City to, uh, to Quebec City. There's nothing that really states that you can't get materials up here and everything like that. Labor is does cost more, and that's because you know the mining industry pays really well. People tend to go to the mining industry. You got to pay a little well if you want to keep your employees. That's that's always been an, a, a pay issue in Lumber West as well. But at the end of the day, I'm starting to believe that because of gouging in society and because of the cost of uh, cost and everything like that, we've got we've got to our place where we pl- we priced ourselves out of housing in Lumber West. Mm-hmm. And no one wants to come up here and work right now. I mean, when you tell me a price of a home in Lab West is four hundred to five hundred thousand dollars, that's a lot of cash. Uh, I mean, that's almost a a larger, small mainland city house price. There, that's it, not what you expect in Lab West. Right now, in Lab West, a house that was built between the nineteen sixties to the nineteen seventies yeah. is up between two hundred ninety nine to five hundred to six hundred thousand dollars. My dad moved, came to Lavender West and bought his bought, well, bought the house, bought the house where I grew up in in 1989 for twenty five thousand. Yeah, I was going to say it would be under a hundred, right? Right now, the same house on Tamarack Drive is going for almost three hundred thousand dollars, and that's a that's a a, a a townhouse, you know. And you got four, you know, the townhouse, and it has no backyard. <laughs> your backyard, your driveway, and you have a postage stamp for a front lawn. So this is what. You know, you're you're getting here in Lab West right now, and we've we've got to the point where people just can't afford to buy a house up here, and there is not a single rental available in this region, not a single apartment available for rent in this region right now. So before I let you go, then I'm taking it from our conversation. The way the Labrador Crunch gets uncrunched is affordable housing. That's the key. That's first one. Step. That's one part of it because that's one part of it. But at the same time, it also needs resources for uh, for immigration. Um, we don't have, you know, the resources even in this province. You know, there's no like I've talked to uh, new Canadians who says they wait hours and hours and hours oh, that's just to talk right. to somebody and, and just to figure out their situation. And they're, and they're not used to Canada. You know, this is, how they, this is how we welcome them to Canada. Like, really? And at the same time... Yeah, welcome. Know. Stand in line. We'll get you processed eventually. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's not fair to these people. You know, they, they travel halfway across the world to come and help us. And this is what we do to them. All right? And this is, this is unfortunate. And, and it's a whole systematic thing. But right now, in Lab West, we've created the perfect storm of where we just don't have enough people to operate Lab West at this time. Okay. Well, we'll keep monitoring this. It's, it's vital. And this story, sadly, as you know, um, is endemic all across the country, particularly in, in, in places like Lab West that are resource towns, uh, trying to get the services. It's, it's tough because there are opportunities out there, but it's so much of a catch-22. I'll go, but am I going to be cared for if I get sick? It's tough stuff. All right, Jordan, good to have your perspective on it this morning. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tim. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, that was Labrador West MHA Jordan Brown. Time for a break here on VOCM's Open Line. Back with your calls after this. Hello, Tim Powers here with you this morning. Good to be with you. Patty is off today. Yes, we've had a few politicians in the row, and that's okay. They have voices, too. They're people, too. 
But if you want to talk, give us a call. We've had a couple of people call and offer opinions, but call and stick on the air with us. We're not so bad. But here's our next politician, and she's a fine person. Doesn't make her any less a person because she's a politician. Helen Conway Ottenheimer, the MHA for Harbor, Maine. Helen, how are you this morning? I'm fine, Tim. Thank you. And I'm glad to hear that I'm a person, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I didn't want you to feel diminished, Helen. I, you know, God forbid on the voice of the common man that we have politicians who represent the common man. But that's it. Anyway, you're calling um, today. You heard the, uh, the interview with uh, Michelle from the Iris Kirby House, and you wanted to offer your perspective. What is it, Helen? Well, first of all, I want to say that, you know, I have been following not only what the executive director of Iris Kirby House has stated, but other um, leaders in the, in the community. Uh, for example, uh, Doug Pawson uh, recently spoke out as well, and he's the head of end homelessness. So we've, we have a lot of people weighing in on this important issue. And um, I, I just want to, first of all, indicate something that Mr. Pawson had said um, just recently about when we're looking at what policy changes need to be need to happen here, because we're, it is clear that, and I reiterate what um, Michelle Green has stated, that uh, you know there's a real fear out there that someone perhaps will die as a result of what's happening, and the fact that almost 300 women have been turned away from uh, from emergency shelters. Which and and that includes some children that they have nowhere to go to, you know, to for safety, mm -hmm. and they're living in unsafe situations is really something that should be, um, you know, should be very um, upsetting and concerning to all of us, and I'm sure it is. But what I think when we look at what needs to happen in terms of policy changes, I, I think that Mr. Pawson has stated a couple of very important points when he says that, for example, we need to see more government engagement. He has, there's clearly needs to be more government engagement that it cannot just... Helen, let me stop you there for a second, because I've not heard Mr. Pawson speak. So what does, what does he mean by government engagement? Because you know well a government can engage in many ways. Is that a serious policy commitment? What, what is his meaning there? Well, what he said and what I also agree with is that we need uh, more investment, for example, okay. in housing. But it's not only that. We need real interventions in place, for example, um, you know, with respect to mental health supports. Um, we need, um, you know, to see um, not just short-term solutions, because what we're seeing right now, Tim, is that we're in an emergency situation where we have women being turned away in the hundreds, right, from Iris Kirby House, we know of, and uh, mm -hmm. O'Shaughnessy House out here in Carbonier. But, I mean, that doesn't even reflect what's happening in other shelters throughout the province and in Labrador. So we need to see more engagement. I think it has to start with that. Um, what I'm somewhat disappointed, actually I'm very disappointed in the fact that we are here where we are right now. How is it that we got here? Because this is nothing new. This has been a longstanding issue. I mean, I've heard from leadership teams in these transition houses throughout the province and in Labrador over the, since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, they were sounding the alarm bells then that we need to have more appropriate investments and that government has to allocate resources in a, in a better way, a way that makes more sense. 
that they have to really engage with and partner with community organizations. And listen, we all know that government on its own is not able to, you know, effectively respond to or address these important issues without community community involvement. But we have to have a more collaborative approach. Now, that's not to say that what's happening now with government and and Minister Abbott is clearly, as was stated early earlier, he's he's caring and compassionate in terms of wanting to um, deal with the situation now. But what disturbs me is that uh, this situation, this crisis we're in right now, it's it just didn't happen overnight. And so, what we see with shelters, of course, we all know that they're short-term yeah. solutions, they're band-aids, but they're only treating the symptoms, Tim. Uh, of the crises on, in our community. So whether it's that we have a dire need for affordable housing, which we all know, whether it's regarding food insecurity, you know, and other poverty issues, mm-hmm. you know, this is, it's all leading to, again, more anxiety, um, you know, by people, and that leads to more mental health issues, of course. I, I agree with all of that, Helen. Just sorry to interrupt you, but I, I want to make this point because you brought it to the the front of my mind, and often that's a big empty, vacant space. So while it's filled, let me make a point, and that is, yeah, look, look, I think you're right, but I, I wonder if, if if what we're hearing about Irish Kirby House, O'Shaughnessy House, now fits into this tiresome pattern we have in public policy making of we get focused on a crisis, we talk about it in the immediate term, and then we forget about it. Uh, look, go back to the beginning of the pandemic and long term care homes. That was the first thing in 2020 everybody was rightly losing their mind over. What much has really changed? Not much according to a caller we heard today. We'll talk about this today, probably for the next month. Uh, uh, Short-term measures will be made. So you're a legislator. You're not in the government at this point. How do you get away from the big shiny baubles and focus on structural change such as is required here, as you're rightly arguing? So what you're saying, and I agree with this, and sadly, I I don't want to agree with what you're saying, but it is true. A lot of people have that trouble, Helen. It's okay. Go ahead. You know, really, it's true because what will happen is we're we're getting attention now. We're hearing from Iris Kirby House and and O'Shaughnessy House, and we hear from other organizations. We heard last year the same around the same time about these issues, although they seem to be now even at a a more alarming rate in terms of the high numbers of women that are left with uh, living in unsafe uh, conditions. So, uh, yes, it is true that it may seem like right now we're, we're just talking about it, but then it will, uh, you know, go away in the sense that, you know, it's, there are other issues that come to the fore that perhaps take uh, or get more media attention and, mm-hmm. and then become um, even more pressing. So how do we make those changes, those policy changes? We have to look at um, policies, for example, with respect to uh, nonviolence prevention, mm-hmm. Plans. Like, I'll give you an example. We have the, the uh, we, did, we, we did have from uh, up to 2019 a nonviolence uh, prevention action plan that was in place, mm-hmm. and yet 
that that was that stopped. Now, you know, we in the opposition have tried to bring attention to that to say, look, this is an important um, vehicle in order to have attention and research-based understanding of violence in our communities. Uh, and, and what it does is it not only provides research, we can then evaluate uh, the the issues as far as how we prevent. Um, domestic violence, how we prevent intimate partner violence. But we have to have those systemic kinds of things in place. That's a very important one. I mean, we hear it stated often, like, okay, well, we all have a responsibility. And that is true. Um, You know, I hear the Minister for Women and Gender Equality say that all the time, and that's true, but we have to look deeper than that, Tim. We have to have a very scientific, research-based plan. And we know that, uh, for example, in the there is a national action plan uh, that came out in 2019 with respect to nonviolence, and and so those those things are very important. They're they're a good starting base, and then we, as a community, with our with the government and with the community organizations, we can look at these these strategic plans, these these very well thought out and researched scientific data, so that we can actually prevent intimate uh, partner violence, because we know it's preventable. But, you know, when we see these issues come up, they're very, the response by government is very short-sighted, it's myopic, and I, I find it very frustrating, because as you correctly point out, we, you know, we were here last year talking about this same issue, and now, you know, it, it'll be something else. But we, we have to urge our government to be more, um, you know, to have more foresight mm-hmm. When it comes to um, policies like this, and uh, you know, so I, I appreciate your okay. uh, discussing this today and uh, your attention to it on your Open Mind program. All right, Helen, good to talk to you today. Some important, uh, thoughtful comments there. I want to continue this conversation if we can this morning. Uh, good to have you. Uh, thank you for joining us today in Open Line. Thank you very much. Bye-bye, Tim. Bye. All right, that was Helen uh, Conway-Ottenheimer. And next, uh, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, Linda Power, counselor from Chapassi, with a bit of an update for us. And Mike Keogh wants to talk about COP15. He'd be one of the few people, and God bless Mike for doing it, because not many people are. Time for a break here on VOCM's Open Line. Welcome back to Open Line. Now, as promised, uh, from uh, Linda Power, counselor in Chapassi, giving us an update on what's going on with uh, access to the community. Linda, are you there? Yes, Tim, I'm here. And so how are things developing down there? I understand there's been a bit of a breakthrough. Well, we have an emergency road done now. It's like a path. Okay. But at least you can get emergency vehicles if needed or whatever, right? But, like, we're here now as a council in an emergency meeting about this, and we've tried to get in contact with the Premier, the Minister of Transportation, the Assistant Department Minister of Roads, and they're all on the road. But apparently they're not on the road in Trapassi <laughs> because the town has been promised help from all levels of government, and we have yet to see any of them here. It's going to yes. be too late when someone dies. 
as every department is passing the buck in the government. Yeah, that's not acceptable. Is there not a central point? I mean, they're usually, isn't it Minister Hogan for emergency preparedness? Or isn't that the, and I'm asking you, assuming the council may know better, isn't there one point of call in a circumstance like this, but you've not found that or not been able to access it, the person? Well, you would think so, but every department that we call, they're all on the road. I don't know when they're coming home, but I hope they get home soon because we are in dire straits here and it's going to be too late if something happens seriously and someone dies. And that water is coming in over the road and it's coming into our harbour too. So along with the lower coast being uh, flooded and that, Mm -hmm. the whole... The whole Trapassi area is in grave danger if there's too high waves and that and that water comes into the harbour. So who is keeping you updated on on the the the, the circumstances with the waves and the the weather and all that? You're just doing all of that yourselves as well, yeah, too, are you? We are. Yep, we keep an eye on it all the time. We had a contractor down there last night uh, trying to clear the road, and it was late in the night before he got to do it, or early this morning before they finished it, right? Now, I'm not 100% sure on this uh, protocol, uh, Linda, but I will ask you, because, again, you may know better. I'm sure you know better than I. Um, does a, you have the ability, do you not, as a community, to request the declaration of a state of emergency? Um, have you con- contemplated that option? We have, and we may very well do okay. that before this day is done if we don't hear from somebody in government soon. Okay. It's ridiculous. Be- because when a state of, and I'm not saying you need to go there and understand there may be reasons why you don't want to go there, but that changes the circumstances dramatically, does it not? In theory, that when you call a state of emergency and the province grants it, then there is a path, a clearer pathway of resource provision? Yes, yeah. Okay. Like, you know, we can't do this by ourselves. The town is going to be bankrupt. Every time that water comes in over that road, we have to repair it. We're only a town of 400 people. Like, we can't afford it. And have you talked to your, uh, uh, though it is federal jurisdiction, have you tried to get the federal MP? Yes. uh, I don't think we tried him now this morning, but Rita has, our mayor, reached out. She's been uh, calling a lot of people, and I just said, this is enough. I'm going on the air and letting people know. What's going on? Because they, they probably think that we're not doing anything as a council, but we're doing everything in our power. And uh, have you had circumstances like this before and had better responses? Because I'm like you, as you tell me the information as you know it, I mean, just to answer that, oh, no, it's, you know, we're not available or the person's yeah. not back yet, doesn't really communicate a very basic urgency that would be helpful here. Yes, exactly. Like, it's... They, as, it's like I said, they're passing the buck from one department to the other. Okay. Well, we will stay on it, Linda. If anything changes, particularly in the next uh, hour and a half or while we are on, give us a call back and VOCM will poke into it as well and, and see if we can find out why the slowness, as you describe it, in response. Thank you for letting us know and good luck. Yes, thank you very much, Tim.
Okay, thank you. That was uh, Linda Power, one of the councillors in Trapassi. Fitting, our next subject is going to be climate, uh, and uh, Mike Keogh certainly knows a lot about climate change and climate activity. Mike is on the line. Line two wants to talk about the thing that's probably been the most under-discussed international climate meeting in years, COP15 in Egypt. Mike, how are you? Yeah, no. Hi, Tim. It's so good to hear you this morning. Um, welcome back on the air, filling in. It's always a pleasure to listen to you. Um, Thank you, Mike. Uh, it's not COP, not COP 15 in Egypt. That was COP 27. That was a COP 27. Okay, sorry. Yeah, well, so nobody's many, talking about so COP 27, Mike. That's why I'm getting my cops mixed up. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, so uh, there's so many cops on the go. And, and for those who may not be familiar with it, it's a, it's a coalition of parties, is what it's called. It's yes. one of these. Uh, conventions that the United Nations puts out. You know, this particular one, I think it's a convention on biological diversity. And it's uh, okay. it's tied into climate change. Of course, COP15 to be held in Montreal, coalition of parties, uh, uh, what's it called? A combination? The International of Coalition of Partners for Climate or something, yeah. isn't it? I'll, I'll get the acronym while you're speaking. Yeah. Go ahead. No, yeah, no, it's Conference of Parties. I parties. Conference, conference of Parties. Yeah. And uh, you're sort of, uh, it's to who's who of uh, climate change. And uh, in this particular one, there are many aspects to climate change, and it's so important to all of us, you know, it really is. Uh, but this particular one focuses on biodiversity. like yeah, uh, Happening in Montreal, December 7th to 19th. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. And so it's to protect, uh, you know, wildlife uh, from climate change and protect the inland waters and a whole whole bunch of things. And it's so important. It really is to focus on all of this. Tim, I have a concern about it and how it could impact Newfoundland and Labrador. Of course, we're okay. going to be impacted by climate change anyway, but uh, my concern is this. Uh, last week, I think about a week ago today, perhaps, uh, your on-target program on the VOCM with Linda Swain, who yes. always does a superb job of being able to have a conversation with everybody, let them, let them chat away, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. They had this. Uh, they had this person uh, from uh, uh, one of these worldwide groups called Oceana, but they're they're, they're subsidiary in Canada. Uh, okay. Oceana Canada, Rangeley, Mr. Rangeley, and uh, in, in the conversation with Mr. Rangeley is they had uh, just released in the past week a thing called a fishery audit. All right. Okay. Now, what it was, what it was really, it was a collection. Uh, uh, Mr. Rainsley phrased it on the program as they went out and they trolled existing information, all right, uh, from other advocacy groups, uh, from uh, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. And indeed, on the program, he said to Linda that they'd really made a trip, and much to our surprise, nobody knew about it. Uh, and they had a meeting with the DFO uh, here in uh, St. John's and stuff like that. So I guess they got more information here. They hired a couple of writers and they put it all together and they issued this thing called a fishery audit, which really came out and said the sky is falling or the sea is drying mm-hmm. off or, the, you know, something like that. Well, I, I understand. I, I happen to support some of what they're saying. There's a lot of overfishing going on out there. But this COP15 thing is uh, to uh, to engage, to pressure uh, governments to bring in rules and regulations. Right. Canada has a thing. Canada has a new thing called the Fisheries Act, Tim. Not mm-hmm. new, but it's been there for, you've probably come across yes. it, I guess, in, Many in times. your work in Ottawa. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so this group, Oceana, and, and other groups are calling for 
the tightening of the regulations, right? Put some teeth to them and bring in without without any proof, but to err on the side of, you know, of, uh, of not, not, you know, not having any damage, but to sort of, and so the, to say, bring in these things and ban fisheries on a lot of species. And this particular one is 62 species they want to ban. Now, some of those are good. Yep. Now, you may recall the, the Minister of the Environment, the fellow named Gilobo. Stephen Gibo, Gibo, yep. am I pronouncing, yeah, am I pronouncing that? Gibo, Gibo, Stephen yeah. Gibo, you got it right. Yeah, he's a former leader for many, of many, Ecuador. many years uh, on the Greenpeace. Of Greenpeace yeah. right? And Equitaire in Quebec, the yes, yes. Go ahead. Yeah, Sorry, I'm interrupting you. Right. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the other ones that have been now prominent here locally is we have a former executive director for many years of a group called the International Fund for animal welfare, mm-hmm. right? He's, uh, and indeed, Mr. Rangey himself from Oceana as a former leader of a World Wildlife Fund, right? So all of these are very familiar to people of a certain generation in Newfoundland and Labrador for the amount of misinformation and hatred that was spewed against the people of Newfoundland and Labrador by seal hunt. Yeah, specifically related to the seal hunt, and then it was dealt other overfishing challenges, yes. Yeah, and uh, so Oceana recently came out and said there's no problem with the seals, the seals are not eating fish. Although the minister at the, I I attended the seal science conference in St. John's, the minister stood up and said, okay, yeah, seals eat fish, and the sort of, everybody gets a big clap or something, you know. (laughs) Which was, you know, but here you got these groups that are out participating in this big event with the UN, and they have a commitment. Canada has a commitment to have 30% of its land and ocean and species protected. Yeah, Mm -hmm. preserved, protected, preserved. And it appears to me that what they're going to do is they're going to take this trolled information, amongst other things, uh, from groups that are headed up by former animal rights people who uh, who did a lot of damage to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. And they're going to submit this to this COP15. And as far as I know, we don't have anybody there dealing with it. Have you seen anything in the media? I haven't seen anything. Well, no, that's why I was getting COP15 confused with Egypt. I've heard not much about about either one, though I suspect it will get some attention because, of course, it's in the prime minister's hometown. The government is going to want to put on a bit of a show itself uh, because it has significant voting cohorts that come from the broader environmental community. Where, Where I think, though... There will be pushback, and there should be pushback, and not just from Joyce Murray, the the federal fisheries minister, who I think has struggled to get her feet in understanding the Atlantic fishery and the Newfoundland and Labrador fisheries in particular. Uh, People like Dominic LeBlanc, the the prime minister's minister of intergovernmental affairs, he certainly understands the East Coast. And the one thing I would say, uh, the federal liberals, uh, Seamus Regan, Goody Hutchins, others, all of our MPs, certainly get the um, importance of uh, making sure there isn't a mass concession on species, uh, particularly all 62 as you describe them. But I, but that is more. me speculating, yeah. Mike. I have not heard that, but I'm guessing there's some awareness about all of that. Doesn't make it any less important to do what you've done today, which is raise some red flags about, hey, let's look at this list and let's figure this out, not take it uh, as um, gospel truth, uh, particularly as you also acknowledge there's some challenges with the way the information has been pulled together. 
Yeah, look, I want to give Joyce Murray kudos, Tim. She pulled together the SEAL Summit. Now, the media wasn't allowed in, I, I, but I understand yep. why. I mean, I, I, I took advantage of a, a, a talk that I made at the microphone there to actually apologize to the Aboriginal people for what was done to them uh, with Newfoundland Labrador's uh, compliance in 1985 by the release of the Maluk Royal Commission on Seals and Sealing in Canada. And by the way, it's hard to find a conservation group nowadays out there that doesn't firmly embrace uh, Aboriginal people. So not, yeah, not, you, you, not you have to. It's the right oh. thing to do. Oh, yeah. Anyway, Mike, got to give you about 30 seconds. Mike, got to give you about 30 okay. seconds, my friend. Tim, uh, yeah, I want to thank you very much uh, for the opportunity just to voice these concerns. Uh, and uh, uh, once again, it's great to have you back on the air. All right, we'll pay attention to this. It's an important conference. Thank you, Mike. All right, that was uh, that was Mike Keogh raising the issue of COP15 coming up in December in Montreal. I'm going to regain my voice again, and then when we come back, the Deputy Premier, Minister of Finance, Siobhan Cody, we're going to talk about the um, the $500 cost of living allowance checks and the distribution that's happened thus far. Back with uh, Siobhan Cody right after this. Welcome back to Open Line. Glad to have with me now the uh, Deputy Premier Minister of Finance, Siobhan Cody. Siobhan, how are you? I'm wonderful, thank you. Sounds like you're losing your voice, so I hope <laughs> you're doing well. Uh, yeah, then uh, Not helpful for doing this today, but that's all right. When you have, uh, as you know, young children that get sick, it passes around the family. So there you go. Um, Let's start with the cost of living checks. So you've distributed, I gather, around 110,000 of them. Uh, so the $500 payment has gone out so far. What's the reaction been to the, uh, from the recipients thus far? Have, are you hearing that they're providing some form of immediate relief that is needed at this time? Well, certainly it's part of the program that we have announced on cost of living about where we were returning to the people of the province about $430 million. And I know, Tim, that you recognize that as a tremendous sum of money in Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, we've, we've had a very comprehensive program, and this is one part of that program. We've reduced the cost of... Uh, the cost of gasoline. We've re reduced the provincial government gas tax to the uh, second lowest in the country. We've we've provided increases in the seniors' benefit. We've provided increases in the uh, in income support checks. We've you know we we've been doing a comprehensive program, as I said, to the value of about four hundred thirty million. Checks have started to go in the mail. We really want to get them in people's hands as quickly as possible. Certainly before Christmas, that was our goal when we announced this just a month ago. So we're working. Uh, I know there's a lot of people working very hard in finance and a lot of overtime to get these checks in the mail. We're up to about 125,000 now in process. Um, that's a tremendous number, but over the next couple of weeks, we hope to get uh, more to get them all out in the mail. Uh, as you can appreciate, we've started with the lowest income first to get the you know to get to help them. So you did do that, okay? Possible. Okay. Yeah, right. no, we started with the lowest income going to, as you know, the program up to $100,000 in income. It's $500. And then between 100 to 125, it, it goes down to 250. So the lowest check will be $250. And that's a tremendous, like, it's almost 400,000 people in the province will receive this, uh, this support. And I 
know that it's certainly an important relief for people in the province. We've had uh, lots of people uh, to help, and this is uh, just one thing. And we're also doing, and I want to remind everybody, we're, we're doing a home heat um, uh, yeah. supplement as well. So anybody who, uh, who uses oil for heat, they're certainly able to apply for this uh Stipend this this support up to five hundred dollars, and that the, the uh, deadline is November thirtieth. So I'm asking everyone to get that. Uh, anyone who hasn't applied to please apply, so we can get those checks out to people as well. To, uh, now for the checks, I never got clarity on this, and that may just be me mm-hmm. not having heard it. But do MHAs, those who are MHAs without supplemental income, do they qualify if they are they fit in that hundred twenty thousand dollar below threshold? Anyone who qualifies who earns less than $100,000, anyone who qualifies uh, for that will receive their check. And there has been some discussion about people who may have passed away. And, you know, it's really... It's really difficult when you lose a family member, and we all know how hard that is on us personally. But if you had a family member who who passed away within the last six or seven months who have filed their income tax in uh, 2021, they, the, the state would receive the $500. So, you, you know, your loved one who passed away may receive the, the, the check. Um, it goes to whoever the executor or the administrator of, the, of, of that estate is, and they can deposit it. So it's it's certainly helpful for the families who've lost loved ones as well. Uh, getting a question from our newsroom, and it is this. Are you aware of where people can bring checks to be cashed? We're picking up that some grocery stores won't let you cash them there because there's always been a practice in Newfoundland with a federal check. Most stores let you cash it. Are you aware of any of that, or are there any impediments you know about related to that? I haven't heard directly of of any uh, facility that's not cash and check, because as you know, our checks are our checks are good, so they should be able to be uh, readily cashed. Uh, if there if someone's having some difficulty and needs some support, I'm going to give you a one eight hundred number. Um, so it's one eight seven 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 two nine six three seven six. So seven two nine six. Three seven six. If you're having any difficulty, need support, need help, need to change your address, for example, um, you know something is, is you know you need to discuss with the the tax department. That's the phone number. You can appreciate we're getting calls. As I said, upwards to four hundred thousand checks going out. I think it's probably one of the bigger check programs we've ever initially initiated in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, so please be kind and patient. Uh, leave a message, and someone will get back to you as quickly as possible. Speaking of checks, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians in July, assuming they've done their income tax, will be uh, eligible for um, federal government uh, GST rebate payments. Now, don't know if you heard it earlier, but I'll try and get, uh, I'll ask you what was asked of me. Paul Lane, your, your counterpart in the House of Commons, had a question, or House of Assembly, excuse me, had a question about um, what lost revenue Newfoundland and Labrador may be subject to now that the federal government is backstopping the uh, carbon carbon pricing plan in the province. So is there lost revenue to Newfoundland and Labrador for now becoming uh, a member of the federal plan? Okay. So you mentioned GST checks. So just for clarity for those that are listening, you're you're talking about the carbon carbon uh, tax check. 
So no, the, the carbon tax until, check is separate than the GST tax. Exactly. Right. Go ahead. Um, so, so up until now, we've had a made in Newfoundland and Labrador solution for carbon tax that exempted home heat, for example. Um, it exempted it exempted uh, fishing. It exempted offshore exploration. Exempted ag- agriculture. So there was a made in Newfoundland and Labrador solution. And the most important thing I think for individuals is it exempted home heat. Um, now the federal government is coming in with the backstop. We've asked them not to do that. We don't think it's the right time. We think with the price of oil the way it is and the increased cost, we, we think the message is already there on conversion and we're already supporting people to convert their homes from oil heat to uh, to electricity. But in the meantime, the federal government has said no. They're, they're, as of July next year, they will be introducing the full carbon tax mm-hmm. on home heat, which is significant. And so at that time as well, there will be uh, checks issued by the federal government, right. uh, kind of a rebate of carbon taxes back to people. So what what, what impact does that have on the Treasury? This yeah. year, it, it would have been about $117 million we would have collected in carbon right. tax. Now, as I said, we rebate it back 400 and over, over $430 million to the people of the province. So they they received much more than what they would have received under the carbon tax actually but next year if, if memory serves i don't have a i don't have okay. my estimates book in front of me but it's approximately 170 million dollars so we'll have to uh, we'll have to consider that and and how and and what we you know how that will impact our as we move through the budget process but it's approximately 170 million dollars next year Last question for you, because we got to take a break, and I appreciate you're also sure. very busy. The, the bigger question of, of recession, we're kind of in this place where mm-hmm. economists are saying we're likely to have a mild recession. It's uh, it, it seems a bit inevitable. What is your take on where we are headed, uh, whether it be a recession or not, over the next six months and the impact that will potentially have on the province? Well, certainly we're already seeing commodity prices decline. You're seeing the price of oil decline. Uh, so you're starting to see some of those, what I'm going to call signals in the marketplace even now. Uh, I am hopeful that Newfoundland and Labrador will have a rather soft landing. I can tell you globally in certain sectors, in Europe, for example, I think it's going to be much more difficult. They, they have a higher cost of living uh, challenges than we do in Canada and in Newfoundland and Labrador in particular. Uh, so I'm hoping for a softer landing. And, uh, you know, our economy right now is rather is robust. That's why we're, we're enjoying, a, you know, a surplus this year. And it's because we, we you know, our, our economy is stronger than we had anticipated. But we do anticipate a slowdown. Everyone is anticipating the slowdown um, in 2023. But I'm hopeful we'll have a softer landing uh, as our economy is uh is still very very strong, so I'm I'm hopeful it won't be as uh, as difficult as it's going to be in some other locations. All right, I appreciate your time today, Siobhan Cody, Deputy Always. Premier, Minister of Finance. Nice Take to care. chat with you. Thank you for the time. Bye bye. Oh, okay, that was Siobhan Cody. As I said, all right, a little late for news, but wanted to get into some of those issues. And Pauline, good question. There, you got the answer: hundred million dollars, hundred seventy million dollars next year in potential uh, lost revenue, uh, given the now soon-to-be federal administration of the carbon tax. All right, better hand it over to Brian Medora. I'll be in trouble. VOCM News is here now. Welcome back to Open Line. I was waiting, but I got fooled then by the second voice of Greg Smith. But that's after the next segment. But on this segment, I'm going to. 
one of Greg's colleagues, somebody I know very, I think she does great work. Tara Haley, the development of director at VOCM Cares. Tara, how are you? Hey. There, Tara? I'm there. I'm great. Thanks. How are you? I'm good. See, look, we talk about Greg, and he forgot to push the button. Then he got it right. So <laughs> right? Already falling down on the job. <laughs> uh, now he, he's probably going to jump on in a second. Give me a hard time. Listen, uh, tomorrow, well, first of all, congratulations. Dial to Carol. Uh, you guys knocked it out of the park. Greg, of course, Claudette, everybody. Uh, great work on that. You've got uh, the happy tree coming up in a little while. But tell me about, like, Giving Tuesday and where that fits for VOCM Cares and, and others who are trying trying to, to raise money for so many important causes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Giving Tuesday is a really great movement. It's a global movement, actually, now. It's, it's quite large. Um, and really all it is, it's a way to encourage people to give back. And that could be by donating to a charity that, um, you know, a cause that they really uh, they like, or it's by volunteering their time as well. So, uh, as you may know, Tim, through VOCM Cares, that is really our purpose as well. Mm -hmm. We strengthen communities by giving back. So, a few times through the year, we provide program funding to uh, various charities, local charities in need. And then, of course, we also have a Children's Trust Fund. So, that's where we support families with financial assistance when their child requires medical care. And then, of course, at this time of the year, we're very, very busy. Um, as you know, yes, yesterday was an incredible day, as you said, uh, over 28000 raised for uh, the Community Food Sharing Association. And then we also have our Happy Tree campaign, which is now in its 48th year. Is it 48 years, Tara? 48. Wow. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, Giving uh, Tuesday helps uh, folks like us, uh, foundations like us, get the word out uh, to help share uh, with people and, and and encourage them to give back in whatever way they can. It's, uh, I remember, God, as a kid, uh, as you probably do, Greg's probably, uh, well, maybe both you and Greg are the same age. So, But I will say my, I, I will say in my era, I do remember going to uh, the Avalon Mall, and the tree used to be there, and the music was playing, and, and you'd uh, give if you could, and uh, you guys did so much, and there were other fundraising activities there, of course, the Salvation Army, Red Kettle, and uh, all of those things, but... Um, the, the Happy Tree is certainly an institution in the province. And you've been busy this year. Hey, Tara, uh, Greg and I were talking about this, the Fiona uh, concert, which raised uh, $2 million when you add in the federal government matching, the Dial of Carol, this. I mean, does it astound you in some ways that despite the economic times that we're in, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians still open their wallets? Absolutely. I think we say that every time we do a fundraiser. We do radiothons throughout the year. Um, right now we're asking for various campaigns and each and every time we look at each other at the end of the day and say, it's just incredible. You know, Newfoundland and Labradorians, when, you know, they want to give, they give big. And, you know, we know that many people out there are having a hard time. Um, and somehow, some way, uh, you know, people in Newfoundland and Labrador just do better and, and they give back each and every time. We're just so absolutely thankful every time they do that. Now, before I let you go, um, just give us an update on this year's. You talked a little bit about it, but it being in its 48th year, Happy Tree is the big initiative by VOCM Cares now between now and Christmas, correct? 
Yeah, you got it. So it is up until December 23rd. So, of course, we are uh, hoping that people can make donations. They can go to the Avalon Mall if they're here in the metro uh, area. Or there's, of course, locations all across the province. So they can go to vocmcares.com, look up all the locations. And we're just looking for toys or gift cards, actually, because a lot of times uh, people tend to forget those older children, let's say, so the teenagers. So uh, we do know that uh, they like gift cards in particular. So we're looking for both that and toys for children in need. And then, of course, people can also donate online. They can go to vocmcares.com backslash backslash donate uh, and they can donate to the cause that way if they prefer and uh, we actually have a great partnership with the Newfoundland Growlers this year so So yeah, it's amazing. They're, uh, you know, we're so thankful for their support. Again, going above and beyond for the community. So uh, this Sunday coming up, December fourth, their four p.m. game. They're actually donating five dollars from every VOCM Cares Happy Tree ticket that's sold back to the Happy Tree campaign, which is phenomenal. And in addition to that, anyone who purchases a ticket for that game uh, can do can use a promo code, a Happy Tree promo code, and they the price of their ticket is. $20 total. Okay. So that's taxes and fees included. So they get a discount and they get to uh, support a cause at the same time. So if people want to take part in that, again, it's next Sunday or this Sunday coming up, December 4th, the 4 p.m. game. They can go to NewfoundlandGrowlers.com backslash happy tree and they can get their ticket. Char, do you wake up selling in the morning and selling at the end of the day? You're awesome at it. Here you can donate here. You can donate there. You are fantastic at it, and you do fantastic work. Thank you for joining us today, and you will hear often on this radio station, as you should, how you can help out. Thank you, Tara. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. That was uh, Tara Haley, director, uh, development director of VOCM Cares. We're going to take a, a slightly early break, and then when we come back, Robin Legros and Pam Parsons to talk about a couple of different issues. I'm Tim Powers, back with you shortly on VOCM's Open Line. Welcome back to Open Line. We're going to go to, I think it's line one, and talk to Robin Legros. Robin wants to talk about housing, a pressing issue in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador and across the country. Robin, how are you? Good. How are you, Tim? I'm good, thank you. Well, what's your perspective on the housing crisis? And it's fair to use that term we find ourselves in across this country. Well, I'd like to think I have a uh, front row seat uh, to the most severe um, part of this crisis. Uh, I live in the Tessier Park neighborhood area. Um, so, uh, And I have a couple of dogs that I walk uh, from, say, uh, Tim Hortons on Harvey Road to Bannerman Park and back quite often. Um, and so I actually have a piece uh, going in the Telegram this week about that experience and the things that I see. So I won't get too much into that part. But what I wanted to talk about was, um, you know, we talk about the homelessness. We talk about um, the shelters turning people away. But it's the, the policies that are currently in place um, with CSSC around housing that I have an issue with. So we, we don't have enough housing right now um, to accommodate. And, like, uh, we need different kinds of housing. And so this is going to be – it needs to be a, a multi-pronged approach over several years um, to understand how people have um, – 
evolved into living, right? So, you know, 50 years ago, the majority of people living in St. John were in a family setting. Um, you know, five, mm-hmm. five kids or more and two-parent yep. households. Maybe you might have the odd in-law living with you. Um, <laughs> and, and odd is a very loaded word there, Robin. Anyway, go ahead. So it could mean many things, really. Yes, it um, could. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, but that has changed. Okay. And it's changed, um, as, as society has changed. And so, you know, when you, when you look at, um, mental health and addictions and untreated mental health and addiction. So again, back in the day, if a family member had a a mental health issue, they were very well supported by the family. Um, and oftentimes you didn't know that there were any issues, um, outside of the household, shall we say. Um, but now that has gone way out of whack. And so what we're seeing is a lot of, um, drug addiction that has come from a lack of available help for mental, untreated mental health. So people aren't able to access their medication to keep them stable. And so they find themselves going to the black market. um, You know, a lot of people have become addicted to opiates through um, pain relief and that sort of thing. So all of a sudden they're addicted. So when people used to get addicted to drugs, say, 30 years ago, it was a much different causation than what we're dealing with now. Okay. So we can't apply our same, um, assessments of the situation, um, that we used to. So right. So I want to explain what happens right now. If you find yourself in need of a shelter space, so you're all of a sudden you find you have nowhere to stay for the night. You call a number at um, CSSD, the housing number, and you have to prove to them that you have no other living arrangement. And, and by how the hell do you mean, do that? How do you do that? How do you prove that? Well, I mean, that seems well, odd. that's a good question. That's a good question. You will not get a shelter bed in this city if you have a lease, a valid lease, okay. Okay, now, you could be a woman who's living with a man who is, right? But they won't let you stay there because you have a lease. (laughs) If you go there and say, my landlord kicked me out last night, Mm -hmm. now I need a place to stay, they will require you to either, either get the police or your landlord to prove to them that you've been evicted before you can get a spot. I, I get some, as I'm sure you do, some degree of of of, of course. proof. But I mean, you can't make it also so onerous that there it isn't an option. And it sounds like some of those options are anyway. Sorry, Robin, for interrupting you. Go ahead. No, but it, it, the disbelief, <laughs> the questioning, the process is is quite normal because yeah, of course, you know, uh, we're talking about people who don't have access to phones. Right. They're using yep. uh, phone. You know, a lot of them don't have cell phones. Um, you try. I mean, you try and find some of the slummiest landlords in the city. You try. And find <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Because they're not putting them in their ads. They're not the ones showing the apartments. Right. Mm-hmm. So trying to make all this happen. And then if you don't get that, then you go stand in the lineup at the gathering place at eight o'clock at night and cross your fingers and hope there's an empty bed. But if you made trouble there. At some point, like say, you know, you had a uh, an emotional breakdown or whatever, uh, they won't let you stay there. And so they get the staff. This is and this is what gets me is that the staff at these shelters are the ones who have to deliver this 
the bad news sometimes. And so what they, they give them language to use, like, uh, you have to self-resolve tonight. Self-resolve? That's a new one. Wow. Self-resolve. Yeah. Hmm. So, you know, it makes, I'm sure it makes the policymakers feel a lot better about what they're asking people to do. But, uh, you know, this wasn't such a big deal a month ago when the temperatures were, you know, yeah. above 10 degrees at night. But let me tell you, as the weather gets worse um, and more evictions happen because they are happening daily, all you have to do is drive through. Uh, you know, Cabot Street, Carter's Hill, and, you know, Livingstone uh, in the first week of a month. And you will see someone's furniture piled out on the street. You'll see doors beaten down. Uh, you'll see boarded windows and doors and pulled out electrical things in landlords' desperate attempts to get people out. Oh, my. i got to give you about one more minute, Robin, to take another no, call. No, that's all I, mean, I have to say. That's all I have to say. I just want people to understand what it's like for people who are currently experiencing homelessness. And then anyone who is on the verge of facing or possibly facing eviction or have been evicted and are looking for a new place that they cannot find because there is nothing available for people in this, uh, you know, uh, bracket. Um, they're living life. With an awful lot of stress. And if you want to talk about making Newfoundland the healthiest province in the country, let's start talking about the effect of stress and how that has on people. Uh, it's very, very pronounced. Well, th the thank you I will give you is for painting that uh, vivid picture because, again, I think it's people will hear homelessness, they'll hear domestic violence, they may have a some sense of discomfort in their stomach, but they don't get, as you just did, some of the aspects of it that are very real, which may lift their level of engagement in trying to encourage people to address it. So thank you for that, Robin. I appreciate it. No problem, and thank you for giving me the time. All right, take care. That's uh, Robin Legro. Now we're uh, speaking of domestic violence. We're going to go talk to the uh, to Pam Parsons, MHA Minister responsible for women and gender equity and uh, gender equality. Excuse me. Pam and I had this discussion last year, and I'm glad we're having it again. And that is on the Purple Ribbon campaign. Pam, how are you? Good morning, Tim. And you're right. We had this conversation last year. It's unfortunate that I think we're going to we be gotta having, have it again. Yeah, we're going to be having these conversations for. Probably for the you know for the rest of time. Well, but that said, it's important to work on initiatives such as the Purple Rhythm Campaign, which is a campaign of 16 days of awareness, creating awareness, of course, uh, to ultimately prevent and eradicate gender-based violence. And so, I kicked off. I hosted a ceremony this past Friday, actually, at the House of Assembly, in partnership with the Hibbs family. And you may remember, of course, Debbie and Philip Hibbs of CBS, they lost their daughter, uh, Julianne, and her fiancé to domestic violence. Um, it was the worst outcome, obviously. She was killed. Her life was taken, as was her fiancé, by an ex-partner. And, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the other families that were there, the family of Courtney Lake, her mom. Yeah. I mean, these people are... It's, they live this every day, and I mean, they're, and they're, I don't know how you ever recover from it. The, the I don't think we do. Child I don't, in I don't, circumstances like that makes it even worse. Sorry, go ahead, Pam. 
But you're right, though. And, I mean, it's it's a perfect storm. And I hate to use that term, but, I mean, what we're seeing, the, the effects of the impact of COVID, we're seeing inflation, uh, and, and it's impacting our globe um, across our country, of course, and, and province and, and the world, for that matter. But I want to, and where I come into play here, of course, I work in partnership with my colleague, Minister John Abbott, who's responsible for children's senior social development. And his budget and his mandate is to, indeed, oversee transition homes, uh, Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. And, and shelters. Uh, I come into play with the with the um, with the prevention of gender-based violence and violence prevention. And I've got some updates that I want to provide listeners. And I also uh, heard some previous calls. So just to uh, I guess provide some. Yeah, you got about three or four minutes, Pam. So go ahead. From accuracy, okay. Well, the latest, of course, well, three point two million dollars in my budget for the Minister for Women and Gender Equality in my office goes to violence prevention. And we work in partnership with community stakeholders of about 23 organizations across Newfoundland and Labrador um, that are on the front lines helping victims and people to provide these resources for the people who need it the most. Uh, but some, and um, I also want to say the violence prevention plan that was mentioned earlier today in the show, 94% of those initiatives, 64 calls to action, have been implemented. We've made some significant legislative changes as a result of that when uh, our government has taken office with, for example, the Labor, the Labor Standards Act which provide day, days of, uh, of it forgives a, a, a lease, if you will. So if someone is escaping domestic violence, there's no penalization. Um, also, the Landlord Tenancies Act, that one, labor standards, days leave are provided for people who need to flee violence. The Schools Act has been amended. Um, intimate images, bail supervision, just to name a few. But the big news here today, um, we've just signed off, and it's actually an announcement made by our federal minister, Marcy Ian, at the most recent federal provincial territorial meeting, which happened just last month. And it's a 10-year plan. It's an, it's an action plan. It's a national action plan that focuses on doing just that, eradicating gender-based violence. And it's based on five pillars. So it's over $500 million, million that will be dispersed across our country for the next five years. Pillar one focuses on support for survivors and the families. Pillar two is prevention measures. Pillar three, promotion and responsive legal and justice systems. Pillar four focuses on support for indigenous-led approaches and informed responses. And pillar five, Tim, is social infrastructure and enabling environment. And on that note, um, about engagement, I was—I I actually met with uh, Michelle Green. She happens to be one of the members on my board for the Provincial Advisory Council for the Status of Women. She made these uh, these these problems, of course, these concerns aware to me, and I immediately facilitated a meeting between her and Minister Abbott. And today, I'm actually just waiting to board a plane. I'm traveling to Happy Valley Goose Bay to meet with the Indigenous women, uh, the, the Indigenous women across Newfoundland and Labrador, we meet annually, and that's to talk about the calls to justice that came out of the National Inquiry for murdered, murdered Missing Women, Indigenous, and Girls. So it's all about engagement. It's all about working with our community partners. So I just wanted to come on and provide those, those updates to you today, Tim, and as well as your listeners. Yeah, thank you, Pam. Those are important updates, and I, I'm I'm still struck by something uh, Michelle said, and it's certainly something you live in your in your current ministerial role and uh, would have encountered in your previous life as a journalist and and as an MHA. The you know the attention is on this now because of the Purple Ribbon campaign, because of the news stories around um, the capacity challenges at Irish Kirby House and O'Shaughnessy House. Uh, and this is not a criticism of your government because it it would be applicable to any government. Uh, it's just a question, and it's a tough one. But I'll give you about a minute to answer it. Is how do we move this up the policy priority chain, and that this is proper investment in the prevention and 
management of domestic violence. By management, I mean creating enough transition space for us. You talked about the prevention side of it. Can you just give me a, a, a quick thought on that important issue before I break for the news? Well, you know, it's all about support, and the onus is on each and every level of government, um, you know, municipal, provincial, as well as federal. And I think that's where it's announcements like these. It's $500 million over the over the next five years. It's a 10-year plan. I mean, ultimately, we need support from our federal government. And it's about meeting on the ground. Like, I'm joining the Premier today, the Minister for Indigenous Affairs right. Reconciliation, as well as the Minister for uh, Children, Senior Social Development, and officials from Justice. We are all meeting today, actually later on in Labrador this week, to talk about to talk about about these precise matters and concerns about violence. It comes down to education. We can throw so much money at prevention, but you know, ultimately, it's systemic and attitude change. And that said, too, and this is something that Minister Haggy can probably elaborate on: education, the new caring, caring and scaring, uh, sorry, rather sharing, caring schools. Um, in the initiatives now that we're seeing in our curriculum, and that aims at teaching young children at the grassroots about healthy, consensual relationships. And that's what it's about, and it's about calling it out. It's about, of course, resources uh, for the front lines, but it's a collaboration of all of these things working together. And, again, it's going to take everybody pulling on the same oar. I mean, it's, I, I get it. It's, it's some, some of us have a job to criticize, but I welcome those to come and, you know, roll up our sleeves, join the table in solution finding, because that's what it's all about. All right, I'll leave it there. Good luck in Labrador, uh, particularly as you highlight um, the violence against Indigenous women, as particularly highlighted in that uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women inquiry was was significant and it's quite pronounced. I need to take a break, though. Thank you, Pam. Thank you. All right, it is time for the 11:30 news with Jolene Grimes. Sorry, Jolene, I got it wrong last time. We'll be back with more of your calls after the 11:30 now 33 news. Welcome back to Open Line. Last 22 minutes or so of the program, going to focus for another minute on Giving Tuesday, and to do that, we are joined by Christina Morgan. She is the president-elect of the Association of Fundraising Professionals for Newfoundland and the Atlantic Canadian Media Spokesperson for Giving Tuesday. Tuesday and gee, Christine, you're living the brand here. Also with Ronald McDonald House, Newfoundland. You're clearly giving. How are you, Christina? <laughs> Good morning. Thank you for that introduction. Well, listen, I uh, I, I admire people who give back. Uh, you clearly do that. I just uh, had lost a cousin who was very philanthropically minded. So I know tomorrow's super important. Tell us about Giving Tuesday from your perspective, what it means, what it, it, it is in terms of a potential fundraising day for, for charities, and anything else you think we should know about Giving Tuesday. Well, tomorrow is um, is our annual Giving Tuesday, and uh, Giving Tuesday, I guess, started 10 years ago on a simple idea that encourages people to just do good. And, um, you know, Giving Tuesday reimagines, you know, a world built upon shared humanity and generosity, and uh, this is a, um, a worldwide uh, giving, so... We're encouraging everyone to join the movement dedicated to completely giving back. And there's so many ways to give back and help others to just, you know, think about your favorite charity and, or your cause and get your friends involved and, uh, and do something amazing for uh, someone tomorrow on Giving Tuesday. 
And I, I assume it also helps uh, from a from a marketing perspective. And there's nothing wrong with talking about marketing because you have to be clever in the way you encourage people to give Monday that we money. Excuse me, that we well speaking of Monday today, Cyber Monday. Friday was Black Friday. Is there a sense that in in these sort of circumstances that after people have you know done their shopping that doesn't hurt then to come and ask them to to think about how they might spend their charitable dollars. Absolutely. You know, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, these are all the biggest shopping days of the year. And Giving Tuesday marks something even greater. It's a day marked around the world to give and celebrate generosity. Um, you know, it's something that we look forward to and plan for as, as charitable organizations. And, uh, you know, this is the season of giving. This is when generosity is generally at its highest is during, um, you know, the months leading into the holidays. And there's a celebration of all types of generosity on Giving Tuesday. And every time somebody is doing something amazing and they use the hashtag Giving Tuesday 2022, it inspires people um, around them to give gifts of time, skills, goods, advocacy and so much more showing that everyone has something to give and every act of, of generosity counts. And before I let you go, um, I, the, the one thing, my, my only gentle critique of Giving Tuesday is the not-so-gentle bombardment of every chair from every charity you may have ever given to. I can't think of the number of emails that I've gotten the last number of days <laughs> from giving over the last number of, of, of years to different things. I'm no better or no different than anybody else. We all give as best we can. So that critique aside, if you're listening today and you want to give and you've gotten all these emails, what would be your quick guidance, Christina, on how you determine where you want to give your kindness and potentially your dollars. Well, you know, get behind your favorite charity, that charity that you feel good about giving to, that you feel that you're making an impact with. And, uh, you know, service, like all the programs and services offered by charities have seen an increased demand over the pandemic. So yeah. everything from healthcare and seniors, mental health, food security, Education, social services, there's so much, and, and there are, every single charity is reporting an increased need in their services. So if there's an organization that's special to you, reach out on Giving Tuesday and give them an extra special help um, as they are, you know, trying to balance, um, you know, a pandemic and increase uh, need for services. So tomorrow's Giving Tuesday. There's no better day of the year to be able to do something kind and nice. And if tomorrow doesn't work, any day at all, you can reach out and help any of your favorite charities. Well, it sounds like you will be based on what I'm reading here in terms of all that you do. Thank you, Christina, for making the time today, and uh, I'm sure we'll be reminding people tomorrow, as will the charities, and I'm, I'm being slightly facetious, that's what they got to do, that tomorrow <laughs> is Giving to Tuesday. Do. All right, take <laughs> care, right. Christina. Thank you so much. All right, Thank take you. care. Christina Morgan, President-Elect, the Association Fundraising Professionals. Now I'm going to go to George who's been waiting on line three. And, George, you want to talk about carbon tax. Sorry for the wait. Uh, what, you, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, certainly it's putting an additional burden on the, on the individuals in, in this province. Uh, and I don't know what kind of math they're using to figure out that eight of ten people is going to benefit by the refund. Because when you talk mm -hmm. about this province, you're talking about the um, majority of our food is being trucked in. Uh, yeah. You're talking extra costs on trucking, you're talking about extra costs on the ferry, running the ferry across uh, 
to the golf. So I, I don't know what kind of math you're using because I can't see how it's going to benefit. And what it is, in my mind, is a tax on, on the poorest people in this province, in this country, matter of fact. Because, because Canada, according to their stats, uh, produces about 2% of carbon worldwide. Yet we got a com- uh, country like China, which is still burning coal, manufacturing, high uh, consumer of coal. And yet we have companies in this, in this country that is importing from these, from these countries that is the major contributors to, to the carbon in our atmosphere. Yet they're not doing, the, not doing nothing from that end, but what they're doing is attacking the little people, the individuals, to make them pay. You know, uh, yeah, no, it, it, it's the one argument uh, that that you hear, and you've probably heard this one on our two percent is we can't lecture the world on them making redu- uh, um, uh, emissions reductions unless we do it ourselves. However, that's cold comfort, and I am using the word cold deliberately when you still have to you know you still have to drive to work you still have to heat your home with home heating oil we're in the middle of a very tough economic period which looks like it'll get worse at least in the short term i mean when you look at all of this do you think there's political blame to go around will this influence the way you may vote in an election most definitely uh and uh most definitely i voted liberal most of my life supported uh, the liberal party I, I can guarantee you, so sure as I'm here, that I will not support the Liberal Party in the upcoming election. Matter of fact, I will be going out and campaigning with Uber, Uber is running. Uber has the best chance to defeat that individual. It'll be a handy liberal vote when I vote. Not only will I be doing that, I will be campaigning the hard as I can for other people. We got a member of now. I think he got lost in Ottawa. Because uh, we, I haven't heard nothing from him. Uh, the man made a commitment to me first when he got elected that he was going to call me on an issue. I haven't heard from him yet, so I, I don't know. Maybe you need to get him a GPS so he can find his way back and do something. You know, and people that lead should set the example. I would like to know how many people and and in, in, uh, in our party up there. That have got their electric cars ordered, or got, or is driving electric cars right now, because, boy, I tell you, it's a big, big expense for anyone going into it. Change over your house, you don't to uh, eat pump. We're we're consistently out of power. What is it going to take to run these eat pumps if if we if we have a power shortage? You know, these are questions that are not answered, and it's frustrating. They're misleading the people out there on what okay. on what they're doing. All right, I'll leave it there. Thank you for waiting. Thank you for your perspective. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking more about this. Uh, Thanks for the call, George. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. All right, time for our last break here on VOCM's Open Line. We've got some space for another call. And we'll take that after the break here on Open Line. Welcome back to Open Line. Last few minutes, we're just uh, trying to arrange a caller there. But before we get the caller, let me say a word. And we may not get the caller, so I can say a few words. Let me start with somebody uh, who was important to me, but important to the the province. I mentioned him briefly when we uh, did the Ottawa report last week. And, of course, that's uh, Dr. Nazir Lada, well-known psychiatrist and mental health advocate uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador who died unexpectedly 
a week or so ago or 10 days ago when he was in uh, Egypt with his wife, Dr. Linda Inkpen, somebody I also know and respect. Um, Lada leaves behind his sons, Justin, Michael, and Jonathan. I got to know Dr. Lada on a personal basis, and it's giving Tuesday tomorrow, but let me give you a little something first, and then we'll talk to you, Mary. Uh, when I was first diagnosed with um, uh, mental illness, depression to be specific, I saw Dr. Lada and Dr. Gordon Osworthy, and I remember walking into St. Clair's in the psychi psychiatric unit there, and it was a place where my grandfather, who dealt with mental health issues, had uh, first gotten his treatment. I remember sitting there and thinking of all the anxiety I had and the nervousness and what a failure I was and how rotten it was and very self-absorbed but and scared. And then I met Dr. Lada and Dr. Noseworthy. And I can tell you with great personal assurance that Dr. Lada and Dr. Noseworthy made such huge impact on my life. They intellectualized what I was dealing with. They helped get through the emotions of, of, of the struggles of it. They were supportive and encouraging and frank and kind. Uh, we talked earlier, Michelle Green, about kindness. Dr. Lotta was a kind man, a decent man. You look at his contribution to Newfoundland and Labrador, it is phenomenal. And when I heard he passed away last week, it was a real punch in the gut because Many of the opportunities I have had today and the health and wellness that I'm generally fortunate to have wouldn't have been there without Dr. Lada or Dr. Noseworthy. So Dr. Lada's family, Linda, uh, the boys, I just want to tell you, uh, he made a huge difference to me. He and Dr. Noseworthy, I was blessed to know him. Uh, he made an enormous contribution to this province, and he's not somebody I or anybody else I think is going to forget about in any in any time, and he will certainly be missed. Thank you, Dr. Lada. Now, just to take, it's hard to move to this call, but uh, that's what we do on Open Line. Mary, you're on Line 10. You want to talk quickly about the oil rebate. Go ahead. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, Tim, I'm living in Newfoundland Labrador Housing. Now, we get a, um, well, I got a letter that says back in 2010, actually. Like, as I got to laugh at now because uh, the oil, the heating, subsidy then for a two-bedroom house, which I live in, is uh, $1,245. So that's a long time ago. So now, like, yeah. where the oil is actually <laughs> not to the roof, not to the sky. And last year, actually, I ran out of oil in the middle of April. But previous years, I had lots of oil to do me the winter and into the next fall because we get it once a year, like, every November. Right. Yeah. So I got my oil this year on November the third. So I called the chick this year to make sure that I didn't that I so I, I learned I gotta spare the oil if there's no more so when I called the oil provider they said I don't have any more oil left like so now I gotta I buy it. But we don't get a receipt because uh where we were living in Newfoundland Arbor Hazing and we get the subsidy from the Newfoundland Arbor Hazing, we're not entitled to get this oil, which that's pretty understandable. Right. Yes. So how do you how do you heat your home then? I mean, if you can't get the oil, what do you do? I mean, it, it puts you in pretty uh, Well, now, like, I'm a senior living alone, and the only solution is, like, I'm going to just have to try to, to spare my oil a lot, and when I can, just put a, a drop in the drum, in the drum and, and that's it. So yep. what it, I, 
I, I mean, and you have no ability. I mean, as you say, you're you're senior, living alone. Yes. I don't mean to be disrespectful. You probably are restricted in your income. I mean, is is it even a possibility for you to consider transitioning to these heat pumps that they're talking about? Uh, yes, actually, it was only. About two weeks ago, I heard on the news okay. that Newfoundland Labrador Housing is taking out door furnaces and putting in heat pumps. Okay. Which was so music that... to my ears because oil now was like, like some people say it could be fifteen or sixteen hundred dollars and a fill up an oil drum. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's not cheap. I know my my mother's home in St. John's is uh, is heated by oil, and it's. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I hear about it the day she pays for it and gets it gets it reloaded up because it's uh, it's not inexpensive. So when you hear about you know the carbon tax and the fact that Newfoundland is now going to be part of the federal system because there isn't an exemption, you won't be getting that rebate necessarily for okay. home heating oil. What does that make you feel like? I won't be getting it. Yeah. Oh, so we're not entitled to it. I don't know. No. I shouldn't say that. I'm just saying no. the program is changing. I don't think the yeah. problem. And yeah. so it's that, that now you're going to be paying more. You may get a rebate, but you end up may paying more for. You may end up paying more in taxes for it. So exactly. Yes, because I had no choice last uh, last month. Actually, I had to. Uh, actually, my drum was on empty. I had to get the furnace bleed. I bought about three hundred fifty dollars worth of all, but forty five dollars was HST. And that's another that's thing that I don't agree with. And light bills or your oil is is taxes. It's rough out there. Yeah, for it sure, is. For but sure. now, I don't know. There was a Mrs. Anna this morning, and I think she was someone from the government. And uh, did she say that anybody that got the $500 will qualify for this heating rebate? I I. Don't know. Uh, I don't think she said. We we got into a couple of different rebates. So the the five hundred dollar rebate is I five hundred dollar cost of living check payment, yep. whatever you want to call it, is as I understand it, only income dependent. Meaning, if you make less than one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, you get the five hundred dollars. Um, regardless of what other assistance you may be receiving. There's okay. a GST, federal GST rebate if you're in a certain income bracket. I, Patty can answer this better than I can. I don't know how that impacts. If it does, your oil, home heating, oil, your oil rebate that the province gives you. So she didn't speak to that. No. We spoke to a whole bunch of different things. So better to get a specific answer than me getting it wrong for you this morning. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if there's right. a number you could get for me, probably, and let me know tomorrow. I'll listen to that open Yeah, I'll, I'll let, uh, uh, sh sure, Mary, we'll, yeah. uh, if you yeah. call Greg, the producer, back, we can find uh, find a number for you. At a minimum, you can call your MHA, whoever that is, and they yeah. should be able to answer that question for yes. you. Yes, because I'd like to know, because probably, like, for about just one lot of all so far, which was last month, I do got a receipt for that, but uh, okay, that's when good. the Newfoundland Labrador Housing gives us all, they don't give any receipts, because first, people used to send in the receipts when they're giving out receipts, but we weren't entitled to it, so then the Newfoundland Labrador Housing said, no, we don't get the receipts, so therefore, you can't send it in, because, well, I agree, like, if you're getting your all gigs during the winter, I don't agree with getting the heating rebate. I mean, there's some people got to buy all, buy all, all winter, but we were gifted okay. to get all give us. Right? All right. Yeah, I, I, again, I would check with your MHA. I've got to leave it there, Mary, because yeah. we're about okay, done. Dear. Thank you, and we'll try and get the answer okay, for dear. you. Thank okay, dear. Thank you very much. Bye -bye. All right. Thank you.
And thank you to everybody. A good full show, lots of important topics discussed, lots of people still interested as Mary is and how all the rebate system works with all of the different um, support payments packages that are out there. I'm sure Patty will keep on top of it for you when he's uh, back. Uh, always great to be here. Great to work with my friend Greg Smith. Uh, he is a one-man machine, and Dave Williams not here today, but I always love working with Dave and, uh, and, uh, and Greg. For now, I'm Tim Powers. That's Open Line. Have a great day.